As a species, we're fundamentally insane. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides, start thinking up reasons to kill one another. Why do you think we invented movies and Twitter? Am I right, guys? Derek, have you accepted Jesus as your lord and savior? Because these monsters are going to kill you if you don't. Wow, golly gee, I thought you were nuts, but now I agree with you completely. <laughs> yes. And wholeheartedly. Listen to me as I drink milk and spout scripture. Kill the boy. Kill the boy. <laughs> no, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, dad. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cravenly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scared they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. And this week, we are going to be discussing the 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's novella, The Mist, directed by Frank Darabont. Joining us for that discussion is our returning bud, Evan. How are you doing, bro? Hey, man. Uh, Pretty good. It's been a while. Super stoked to be back on the show. Gonna have to confess, though, Derek told me, hey, do you want to do a podcast with us for Tom Jane's most popular movie? And I said yes. So I watched the 2004 Punisher again. So <laughs> I don't know. This is kind of awkward now. This is a vengeance. It's punishment. There wasn't a lot of punishing in this movie, or I guess there was if you were unfaithful. Hey, I'm John Travolta. I'm here to fucking kill your whole family. <laughs> I'm, oh, I hey. say, I'm a used car salesman. <laughs> Whatever, that movie's good. Oh, it's fucking great. It's the best Punisher movie we'll ever get. So Speaking of uh, fucking Kevin Nash, Heather and I just rewatched Magic Mike 1 and 2 in preparation for Magic Mike 3. <laughs> Well, the the thing, too, that is funny, because we picked you, Evan, too, because this movie has to do with yeah. creatures from another world yeah. that are close to Alien, basically. Uh, it has Tom Jane, and you are a Tom Jane fan. I fucking forgot that Tom Jane was in that wild 2003 Stephen King-based Dreamcatcher. Yeah. I forgot he was in that movie. And more than that, he has been in several Stephen King projects, which we'll get into. Yeah, He's done some wacky shit. Yeah. He really has. He has. Yeah. He's done a lot of direct-to-DVD and VOD. But then he keeps popping up in mainstream shit. His career is kind of all over the place. It's yep. wild. And uh, the entire time, he is not wearing shoes, apparently. Which, uh, <laughs> mentioned before we started recording that uh, we would get into that. This might be a great place for that. Apparently, he is just known for, like, not wearing shoes. And if they are not shooting him at angles where his feet can't be seen, he just doesn't want to wear those shoes I mean, from his costume. You know? Sometimes freedom isn't free, you know, you just gotta <laughs> take those shoes off, man. Uh, let those bad boys out. Let them breathe. I can't remember where I first heard this. I can't remember what podcast it was on or if I read it somewhere, but somebody basically confronted him about his shoes or, or his lack of shoes. Yeah. And his reply was just like, man, shoes are prisons for feet. They are, when you think about it, really. <laughs> As a guy who, like, basically wears flip-flops everywhere, at least until we moved somewhere much colder, I kind of get it, but at the same time, like, sure, bro, you be you. Enjoy uh, your... And then I thought about it, I was like, oh, man, there's so many 
points in these other movies where, yeah, he's just not wearing shoes yeah. in so many movies. I, I was so when you said that, I was like, man, there's a lot of scenes where he's not wearing shoes. Uh-huh. Now that I think about it, yeah. Does he know about Skechers slip-ons now? Because they're really comfy. I don't know, man. I've been rocking those for a while. That yeah. would make sense, right? Or at least just like basic flip-flops. Just yeah. Well, and, and now I'm trying to remember like scenes back from The Punisher. Oh yeah, so the whole first scene when they're on the island and his entire family gets fucking murdered he's just in like jeans yeah is in jeans that entire time and then when he's in his apartment there's a bunch of shots of him in his apartment just in jeans no shirt and no shoes i mean if i was ripped like him i'd do that yeah so why not yeah i guess i guess so (laughs) cool so we have tom jane super fan with us hell yeah (laughs) Cool. Let's go ahead and do some quick recommendations before we start talking about The Mist. Evan, do you have any horror recommendations, whether they're movies, TV shows, comic books, video games? Yeah, I have two things. They're both pretty quick. I've been uh, getting back into comic books here as my financial situation gets a little bit better. I just got on the Ice Cream Man. Yeah. So good. Oh, it's so, so good. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Every other trip to the comic shop, I'm having my local person like order the back issues. So I'll get one back issue every time I go in. The first issue that I happen to get as like I'm getting it pulled for me every week now was the one dealing with the daughter realizing through her whole life that she's going to lose her dad eventually and then he does eventually die yeah and that is so horrifying for me i read that and was in just deep despair for a long time yeah i'm super fortunate to still have my dad and he has been a huge part of my life and that is definitely a real crazy fear of mine like it's gonna happen right yeah there's nothing you can do about it i don't know if there's any amount of preparation that is going to prepare me for that. So I was like, oh, of course, this is the first freaking issue I get of this comic. Uh, I'm now depressed. It really does work that way, too, yeah. because the older we get, the older they get, the more time yeah. that passes, you know, like it's very relatable, even like completely outside of a horror context. Yeah, it's just it is what it is, you know? Yeah. So ooh, that's hitting close to home. But that whole series is great. And man, I would really love to see more people get out and support comics in general but also their local comic shop yeah 100 percent. well we had two in lafayette they've both been here for a long time but the bigger shop which is not the one that i go to and i made that choice on purpose because they have gaming and tabletops and a lot more stuff the smaller shop that i go to is just comics so i wanted to you know what little money i spend wanted it to go to just the comic shop well they just closed about a month ago the big shop so we only have one shop now here in Lafayette. And uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Hattiesburg was lucky for several years, like specifically while we were in college, we had two different places to go. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of them closed down prior to COVID. The other one, the original owner who had had the shop for years, sold it to some guys and it didn't make it through COVID, get shut down pretty quick. So now like, you know, in Hattiesburg where I grew up and where we went to college, like nowhere to get comics. There right, is not yeah. a comic shop that I am aware of there anymore. Well, and I, I live in a bigger city than both Lafayette 
and Hattiesburg now, and even here, the comic shops are limited. I think there's maybe three shops across this entire island, but the one that at least seems like they're making the biggest business, and it's the one that's downtown, it's the most well-known. Like you were saying, Evan, and I think it might have always been this way, but it's been also a tabletop yeah. gaming shop. And honestly, I think they're making most of their money from yeah, the tabletop yeah. gaming. Um, and they just have comics there, too. Yeah, that's really what it is, you know, and it's crazy to think of the margin that they're making, which is very, very small. So to be just a comic shop, very tough, definitely. Going back to ice cream, man, and just in general, we've had Colin Bunn on our show twice now. We are kind of in a horror comics renaissance right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some of the best titles out out there i mean ice cream man something is killing the children the ones that are topping at least that aren't superhero aren't batman that are like instant sellers the ones that are topping the sales charts are all horror comics yep. and so like this is a good time like if you are a horror fan and you want to like expand your input of horror and you're looking for something new like check out comics and go to your local comic shop because you can find a shit ton of great stuff there Ice Cream Man is yep. one of the best. And the funny thing is about that, because I know exactly what issue you're talking about, Evan, because that one also hit yeah. me in the gut pretty hard. There's a panel in that comic that still sticks with me. It's for the first time he realizes how quickly his daughter is growing up. And it's when she's a toddler walking towards him and saying, Dada, that's kind of happening in real time with Autumn. And so it was just like, fuck and then it's funny because i feel like ice cream man really explores like the dark part of humanity of just despair and tragedy to the point where one of the most recent issues the writer prince himself makes fun of the fact that he constantly is writing super dark and tragic and like how humanity is kind of fucked for like middle class people that are just kind of mulling about their lives yeah but that's kind of the where like a lot of ice cream man's energy well, sits i think that's one of the most legitimate places to draw real theater from you know a lot of the stuff at the end of the day the movie the show or whatever no matter how scary it was you can look at it and go ah it's not real life whereas that kind of stuff it's like whoa yeah it's everyday like depression yeah. and being stuck it's like adding horror to the fact that you're stuck at your job that you hate but you can't leave it because you make enough money to sort of live by but like you don't know what yeah. else you can do and, and that's where ice cream man really yeah. sits and pokes at it's been really really good anyway my second recommendation which is like the real one that i wanted to really get out onto the airwaves so when derek told me hey you know we want you to come back i was like i gotta find a way to plug this video game because it needs it and it deserves it but it's gonna be just nonsensical if i plug it on this episode well who do i see coming to the frame of this movie in a pretty major way other than Sam Whitfer, who is the voice of the main character of the video game that I want to plug. And he voices Deacon St. John in Days Gone. And that is, unfortunately, I think, the best video game that has gotten just panned. And because of the way that we are in society, it's not going to get a sequel. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, Evan, but I've noticed this even on our horror Twitter. That game is getting reevaluated yeah. in real time now, especially now that I think it's yeah, on Steam. Yeah. And like more people have access to it. It's really funny. So the Steam score is actually where I think it deserves to be, whereas IGN, GameSpot, all of those places still have it at a six or even lower than that, which is mind blowing. Yeah. It's one of those games that's honestly kind of already turning into a cult classic because on steam right now as of the time of this recording it has a 92 yeah. percent 
user rating with a fuck ton of reviews. So I guess then, Evan, sell me on this game, because I remember when this game came out, I remember seeing bits and pieces from this game, and as somebody who's not a huge gamer yeah. at all, it just looked really rote to me. Yeah. To be fair, yeah. the marketing was yeah. pretty terrible for this game. Honestly. It literally just looked like, oh, you're playing as gruff Mr. Biker guy, and you <laughs> gotta survive in, like, Fallout, The Last of Us, Apocalypse America, and there's zombies. Like, it just yeah. didn't look interesting in any way, shape, or form. And yes. so I just kind of wrote it off as, eh, whatever. And then I never really heard anybody talk about it. Yeah, I don't know. And that might have been the feeling that a lot of people had. And I honestly, at least the original reviews that I read, I don't think those reviewers actually played the game before they wrote their review. Because a lot of the criticism it got, and I guess still does, depending on where you look, is that it is just a really rudimentary game. And there's not really anything special to the story. And the characters are forgettable. And it is just not what that game is. The story is... I think, incredible. I rank it with the original Last of Us, Punch for Punch, and it is a open-world, immersive survival game where the original Last of Us came out in 2013, I think. So technology yeah. is a little bit limited there, but Days Gone does everything that did with story, in my opinion, as good or or better, and I am a biker, and I am a badass, and I'm <laughs> going to ride my Harley around and fucking annihilate zombies. And the coolest feature, I think, uh, as far as the gameplay is, they actually have hordes of zombies. And if you go into certain areas where a horde is living, there could be upwards of 400 zombies on screen, all actively chasing you. So yeah, and a lot of people bash that as, oh, that's the gimmick of the entire game, whatever. But like, I've watched a couple streams of this after like you told me how good it was, Evan. Yeah. And just like seeing all this reevaluation of it in real time. When you really are playing through those scenes, it is fucking impressive. Oh, dude. And it came out on the PS4. Yeah. And even now that we're in the PS5 Series X, even like stronger hardware, it's still impressive to see. And it's uh, generally terrifying in some of those scenes. Yes. And you get legit. fucked up pretty quickly. It's one of the few times in like a video game I legitimately would be like, Oh, shit. I am totally screwed. Especially if you run out of gas. I saw a streamer run out of gas as yeah. the Lord was chasing him, and he somehow survived, but it was intense like, yeah. to watch. So that adds like just a really cool dynamic that no one's done. And again, looking at the plot points, it really is a lot deeper than most people give it credit for. And it takes, in my opinion, again, the zombie genre to some places that it doesn't typically go. And the end of this game, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone, was kind of you know controversial for some people. I really fucking dug. And I thought it was like, man, that's really a cool move on their part. Super stoked to see what they do with it. And then now we're not ever going to get it, which is just disappointing. And overall, I'm a huge fan of third person RPGs. I love getting absolutely immersed into the game. I try to 100% everything that I play. I really think it was one of the best experiences. I've beaten it now 100% twice. And it is not a short game by any means. And the voice acting, again, people criticize. I think it's amazing. And the main character is voiced by Sam Whitfer, who is in this movie. I saw him on screen and immediately was like, that's the dude who plays Deacon St. John. So I don't know. It's something that I think people, if you haven't played it before, do yourself the favor if you're into 
third-person action RPGs at all. It is really good. And if you have played it and you weren't so hot on it, maybe go back and try it again. They've come out with a lot of patches. There were some bug issues when it first released. But as far as I know, those are all been uh, smoothed over. It's been optimized. I think I checked today on um, Xbox. I think it's 40 bucks online, which is probably still a steal. It's on sale a lot, too. So on that note, Evan, what platform are you playing it on? Uh, PS4. Okay. So I bought it when it first came out. I was about to say, what this all sounds like to me is maybe some bad marketing. I don't know what yeah. studio put this out, but maybe like that was just not their strong suit. And then it sounds to me like maybe this was too technical of a game and it just didn't perform well, possibly. And that might have led to some of it. But start. if you're saying you played it on PS4, which is last gen at this point, yeah. you know, and it still seems fine and playable, then like maybe it is just the marketing. Well, yeah, the marketing wasn't great. It's been studios who for older people like us, you'll recognize the game that they uh, produced before this, which was Siphon Filter way back in PS1 and PS2 games. Oh, that's way back. I never played that, but like I, re- I remember yeah. that name. Yeah. And that was a killer ass game back then. I really enjoyed it. Every now and then the game will have a bug. But honestly, I have not played a game, I think, in my entire life that has not had some sort of issue. I'm trying to play Gotham Knights right now, and that is a slog. Why you do that? My (laughs) goodness. My goodness. What I remember of Days Gone's release, besides the bad marketing, I do think it was buggy at the start. It's unfortunately kind of where we're at with the modern state of gaming. Games do get better after release when they're patched and more content is added. Yep. And that's become, unfortunately, normal right there's so many games now that day one there's a patch so hey look i don't know all the details about that and that could have been something they could have fixed you know before launch and that's on them if that is the case but i don't know i always go back to it i find myself going back and playing it a lot it's annoying that i still see so many people just have this really bad opinion of it where i don't think it deserves it well and i think it had at least in the marketing and i don't know the parts of it i've seen are different in my opinion but from the marketing it seemed like it had like a very and i'm talking about more the show rather than the comic walking dead aesthetic to it and i think by the time like that was coming out because this game dropped like what 2019 18 or 19 i think people were already over the walking dead yeah which the timing did not help it because it was in production for like six years yeah i remember it being revealed and then it didn't drop for a few years after yeah so it did not have that going for its favor because when you look at it and again it's marketing was really like play as daryl from the walking dead when uh (laughs) again that's kind of what i thought about it when i saw all the marketing i was just like i whatever like not interested yeah same here but it's it's really immersive. It's really a good time. A lot of people criticize the gunplay in it, but I mean, Derek can attest to this. I'm a huge nerd when it comes to that stuff, and I thought it was fine. I didn't have any issues with it. It does some really creative things with storytelling, with some of the different things you get to do in the game. I really thought it did some fresh stuff, and I just wanted to plug it a little bit here. Maybe with this reevaluation that's happening on it, being so positive that it'll, it will get a sequel now. I don't want to take up any more time, but I wanted to throw that out there just in case there are some people who haven't played it, and I totally get it. You know, it definitely does come off at first glance as like, yeah, I get it. I'm Daryl and killing zombies with a motorcycle. But <laughs> trust me, it's a lot more than that. I know I was kind of a a miss on my last video game recommendation of The Sinking City, but I promise this is better than that. (laughs) But anyway, that's what I had. 
Cool. Derek, what have you got? Short one, real quick, since we're talking video games already, I'll bring up uh, Marvel's Midnight Suns again. I've since beaten Marvel Midnight Suns, and I played the first DLC pack, which is called The Good, The Bad, and The Undead, which is a Deadpool-related DLC that comes with three additional story missions, new side missions, and new enemy types. So the game is actually kind of fixing one of the problems I had with it by adding more enemy types. New enemies and the story is surrounding vampires, which is cool. So Blade, once again. Yeah. Also takes center stage in this DLC. I don't know if I brought this up, Aaron. I can't remember if I did when I brought up Midnight Suns last time. Fucking Michael J. White voices Blade in this Hell game, yeah. and he kicks yeah. Dick in as Blade in this game. Yeah, I've watched some gameplay of it. It's good. Yeah, and the banter between him and Deadpool through this is pretty fucking hilarious. Not gonna lie, but uh, the new enemy types are vampires. This isn't giving anything away because it's in the ver- she shows up in the first mission. The main bad guy, at least in this DLC pack, is Sin, the Red Skull's daughter she is basically trying to steal a vampire ancient artifact that will make the never-ending night happen so vampires can just be out and about another reason i wanted to bring up midnight suns again real quick is it does get a little more horror by the end of the game you're like fucking fighting in a plane of existence where a giant tentacle like older outer god is in the background and you're trying to prevent it summoning and it coming to our plane so it gets very cthulhu by the end of the game which i appreciated yeah that's fun though i like that i love the ending there is a after credit scene this being a marvel game but it, it is an after credit scene that i was fucking pumped for that I hope they explore because they were already confirmed at least three more DLC packs. Although the DLC packs, I think, are all going to focus on this vampire storyline because the Deadpool vampire DLC pack, it left it open-ended. I think it's Dracula is going to be the main bad guy in in the DLC, but we'll see. But the ending of of the main campaign in Midnight Suns leaves it open-ended and sets either a major expansion on the way or a sequel. And I am honestly super excited. I don't want to give away who like they teased at the end, but it's pretty fucking cool. So just threw that out there. Have a comic. Uh, It just kind of wrapped up. It's a miniseries. I think as of March 14th, the trade is out of it. It's volume two. And it's a comic we've talked about in the past, Aaron. Uh, It's Count Crawley, volume two. This one is called Amateur Midnight Monster Hunter. Which, yeah, I have not started volume two yet. I'm excited to get into it. I didn't realize that it had, like, finished. Yeah. Fucking David S. Malkian is is the writer of this. And the first volume was a lot of fun. For those of you who aren't aware of what Count Crawley is, basically, like, picture Morgus the Magnificent presenting like old trashy horror movies it follows this woman whose brother works for the station that does this and she kind of explores her battle with alcoholism and kind of being a fuck up and she starts trying to turn her life around and she stumbles into the gig of being the new Count Crawley because the old one has retired and it turns out that oops not only is Count Crawley like this tv host but monsters are actually real and Count Crawley hunts monsters. And so the first volume is her fucking up, stumbling into becoming this monster hunter. Volume two kind of follows that trend. It also kind of follows her like trying to continue being a successful monster hunter. And what does that mean? Battling the idea of you have to be heartless as to be a monster hunter. I, I like the way David Desmalkian writes monsters because it's it's like the traditional monsters like a vampire, a werewolf, a Frankenstein. But like he kind of builds his own narrative and his own lore around yeah. the monster like 
in order to kill a werewolf silver i think only stuns a werewolf you actually have to cut out its tongue to kill it a vampire can't be killed you can only like put it in a coma by cutting its head off and separating the head and the heart from its body but if they ever come back together the vampire will be resurrected so it's kind of just weird interesting lore pieces that he does there the main character jerry she's a fun read because she is such a flawed character she's openly trying to deal with her alcoholism she's attending aa while also trying to figure out this whole monster hunting thing the old count crawley is kind of a pain in the ass he's like in an old retirement home and he's kind of a son of a bitch to her and at the same time like monsters are slowly showing up more and more in this town of missouri that they're in so it's a fun read it's easy uh read another horror comic you can check out and support your local comic shop count crawley um and it's written by david desmalkian the actor who has sort of started increasing in fame lately uh he was the last thing i remember him in is the polka dot man and the good suicide squad movie yeah but yeah i i hope he's in a lot more stuff it seems like he has a lot of projects coming up i actually just saw him in a trailer i mean he's in the new ant-man movie obviously he's gonna be fucking albert DeSalvo in the boston strangler movie. really yes that's good actually yeah. i like that he is also in oppenheimer he is going to be in last voyage of the demeter which is the story about the ship that takes dracula from you know transylvania around the ocean and to england andre overdahl who did autopsy of jane doe is directing that oh fuck (laughs) i still can't watch that movie so scary he's also going to be in another stephen king adaptation the boogeyman directed by rob savage and i have heard that this movie is fucking good and that the streamer was initially doing tests on it and they were so good that they were like no we're gonna actually release this theatrically yeah i think there's a super bowl spot for it i mean yeah i might be misremembering that but i saw it recently it looked good yeah i think it was a super bowl or it was at least during one of the championship games yeah so he's actually about to be in a lot of stuff pretty soon yeah he was also most importantly on coast to coast recently so (laughs) oh fuck was he really what what did he talk about uh i forgot exactly what he was talking about it was something that had nothing to do actually with acting and it was really interesting and George Knapp was the host so you know it was actually questions that made sense <laughs> yeah do ghosts wear shoes yeah so tell me David you were that guy in the Batman movie does Christian Bale like tea you know because he's like kind of British <laughs> man George Nori I know oh, George uh, he's timeless yeah. man he's like 98 oh, years old or something not really but he's old I know yeah he's anyway, old yeah that's my obligatory coast-to-coast plug but yeah count crawley volume two uh by david s malkian check it out that's all i got cool (laughs) well uh in a quest to find more options for our show we have a super fucking long list of movies that we want to cover and we keep adding shit to it but there's very niche subgenres that i am trying to find more content for specifically evan as we have discussed in previous episodes that you have been on there's not a lot of alien abduction extraterrestrial horror and there's very little of it that's actually good same goes for cryptid horror yeah but on the flip side in that there is a shit ton of cryptid horror but very very little of it is good right so i've been trying to find something else right like in case we have a guest who's like i want to do a fucking bigfoot movie or a mothman movie or a jersey devil movie or whatever i was about to say what about mothman prophecies (laughs) 
Well, we covered that very early in the show, and uh, that oh, movie has not man. aged well, let's Oof, say. Still a low point, yep. <laughs> Which is unfortunate, because uh, I recently finished that book, and it is very interesting, and John Keel kind of um, made him not look great. Yeah, that was maybe the first episode that we did where both of us were like, did we really like that movie, looking <laughs> back on it? Yeah. It hasn't aged well. Anyway, well. so I started looking at Bigfoot movies. And I've seen several. Um, I've seen the, like, Boggy Creek movies. I've seen Willow Creek, which was kind of a found footage movie directed by Bobcat Goldthwait, of all people. And yeah, even our college buddy, Zach Lamplew, directed 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot. Number one will blow your mind. So there are definitely tons of Bigfoot movies out there. So I checked out two, one of which was just put out in 4K in like a big giant special edition recently from Severin called Night of the Demon. Those horror stories you heard about in the forest, they're true. They're all true. Officials found a camera with this film in it, but no trace of the people. We believe that there is a creature living in these mountains. Possibly a close relative to man. We're already in Bigfoot territory, where all those people were killed. Not far from here, a motorcyclist was found. There was no trace of the thing that killed him. The Bigfoot's not playing games anymore. Maybe next time he won't be happy just to scare us which is a terrible title because there is a movie called Night of the Demon from 1957 already that is a very good movie. And then there is a movie called Night of the Demons, Demons with a dollar sign S, that we covered with you, that Evan, Evan, was right? on for. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's like a weird title to begin with. This was a 1980 movie directed by James Watson, who seemingly only ever did porn and this was maybe nice. like the one <laughs> let me try to do a legitimate horror movie and it's about bigfoot it's about bigfoot oh yeah and it's at least a slightly different take on bigfoot it starts off as the regular formula of students going off into the dark scary woods where there's possibly a bigfoot because one of their fathers who was a researcher disappeared in that area looking for bigfoot does bigfoot punish them for fucking so Kind of, but it kind of goes in that weird level. So the twist with this one is that there's all these local hicks that are worshipping this monster. What? Which <laughs> might be a product of hillbilly incest, ultimately. It kind of makes sense, though. There's like all this subplot of they find this catatonic girl in a cabin, and it turns out her like Bible thumper dad was like, no daughter of mine's gonna have sex with a boy. And he like throws her out into the woods and then she's like raped by Bigfoot. Okay, yeah. And gives yep. birth to a Bigfoot baby that the father then like kills out of some religious fervor and the Bigfoot then comes back to like seek revenge, right? It's like very exploitative and gross. The only entertaining moment is a flashback where they're like yeah there was a guy who got killed not too long ago and it like boo -doo, boo -doo, boo -doo, flashes back and it's just this biker who like pulls over on the side of the road gets off his bike goes to the woods to piss and the bigfoot just steps out of the woods and tears his fucking dick off <laughs> and the guy's just like oh god bleeding out of his dick and falls over dead hell yeah and then it just like boo -doo, boo -doo, goes back to present day 
say, and they're like, yep, and that guy died. (laughs) It's just like the most weird fucking non sequitur bullshit. Anyway, that movie was fairly dull. I would not really recommend it. I did image search it, and the fucking creature design is mental. (laughs) It's it's ridiculous, yeah. This movie definitely has strong cocaine energy, I will say that. Well, and, and just real quick, the monster design, speaking of Morgus that we brought up earlier, it's like a cross between Morgus and the old Hulk show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it looks like Lou Ferrigno Hulk and Morgus had a love child, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So... The pretty fucking cool one that I'll actually, really actually recommend. And again, another terrible title, because you go to search for it and a million other things pop up. Primal Rage from 2018. Look, I don't know what you want me to say. Sorry would be nice. Does anybody have a cell phone? Whatever to that, uh, pretty little thing you were There's something in these woods. There's a creature lives in these woods. The legend of Sasquatch comes from. We're talking about Bigfoot? We stand a chance if we fight it. They're coming for you! Which, again, this poster is one of those things that I never would have touched this with a 10-foot pole because it's just a bad poster. It's a weird generic name. So I I heard about this roundabout through somebody else online. This was directed by Patrick McGee, who was a makeup and creature effects guy who has done tons and tons of shit over the years on major series movies. And this was just his pet project that he directed. It starts off with a woman picking up her husband who just was released from jail. They're like a young couple. They kind of mentioned that they had a past partying way too hard. They basically were out joyriding loaded and he hits a child and kills a child. So he like goes to jail. On their way back from picking him up, they encounter a dude in the middle of the road who's super fucked up. They pull over to help him and they get attacked by something dot 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 that forces them off you know, the side of the road. They roll down a hill. They roll off a cliff and into a river and get swept down a river into the middle of the woods. So they're like stranded. Then we see, oh, they're being stalked by this creature and it's kind of predator-ish. It is essentially a Bigfoot, but think less ape gorilla and think more like baboon feral predator. Okay. It has fucking tree bark armor on its arms and it wears like a fucking tree bark mask and it uses like a bow and it has like a little rudimentary axe that like uses tools. That's kind of rad. So it just becomes predator by the end. What fucking works is the creature design in this is so fucking good. This is maybe the most believable version of Bigfoot that I have seen in years. The suit, the performance, it's a really cool different take on Bigfoot than you've seen previously. And it's just fucking brutal, brutal, gory effects like him literally tearing dudes heads off, just breaking dudes apart like meat puppets, right? 
it's pretty fucking rad. I think my only complaint is there is maybe some questionable First Nations mysticism stuff that's in there that I'm not fully sure about the, you know, veracity of, let's just say. Do they do the thing where it's just yada, 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 Native American voodooism and they like combine it's, like two It's of them. kind of done in that weird way. I will give it a little bit of credit yeah. though because there are at least actual First Nations actors and characters in this movie. So it's not just fully white people nonsense. There is a like medicine woman that shows up in the movie. And this is like the only real complaint I have about the movie. Her design is the most ogre witch creature kind of look. And you could tell the guy was like, oh, I've got this rad design for like an evil witch character, but it just doesn't fit in with this movie. Despite this movie being about fucking Sasquatch, who knows how to use tools and hunt people like Predator, that's like the one element that pulled me out of the movie where I was like, okay, that's maybe like two steps too far with this is obviously makeup. You made a totally realistic I buy it Sasquatch, but now you have this old witch lady who looks like something out of a fairy tale book and that's maybe a bit much but otherwise it's pretty fucking cool i would definitely recommend this it's on tubi um it is on amazon like you can definitely watch this easily it's pretty brisk it moves along the story doesn't really drag the performances are pretty good for people who were like mostly non-actors so yeah i dug it i thought it was a pretty cool little ride especially if you enjoy like the predator movies this is kind of similar so yeah that's primal rage from 2018 directed by patrick mcgee also real quick i think primal rage was the name of an old video game that was like mortal Kombat, where you're fighting with animals there's a crocodile man and there yeah. is a baboon man yeah, like yeah. That, i think there's a werewolf yeah that, that's what i was saying like bad title because when you look yeah. for primal rage like a million other things come up yeah <laughs> it's probably <laughs> also the name of some direct to red box steven seagal movie that came out two years ago like hell yeah tons of shit like that yeah yeah atari put out yeah. primal rage it was in the 90s uh, that game was on a lot of stuff too i think it's been released to hell and back but i want to say it was super nintendo and genesis like was where it was first that was like the mom i want mortal Kombat. we have mortal Kombat at home game and it's primal rage yeah Yeah. and that was the whole deal too was oh but they're monsters fighting each other and the blood is green and purple so it's okay okay yeah cool well yeah that's all i've got so let's go ahead and jump into our conversation about the mist Shut the doors! The only way we're going to help ourselves is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. It'll let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then I guess the job would be on me. Take sides. Read the good book. It calls for blood. 
guys. I hear something. Those bugs? Not like any I've ever seen. The entire front of this door is plain glass. They wanted to try and make a window. Well, maybe your window turned out to be a door. Who she's gonna sacrifice to make it all better? We want the board. You try it. Kill him! Alright, cool. Well, I guess I'll jump back in and start since this was a first time viewing for Evan. Derek, had you seen this movie beforehand? Nope. I've seen the ending because of the memes and the internet. Sure, the ending, I guess, has been spoiled yeah. all these years. The other scene that I saw kind of out of context before was like in the back room when the tentacle monster sure. like kills that kid. And maybe a couple scenes of them getting attacked by like the flying insects. But otherwise, yeah, no, this is also a first time viewing for me as well. So in the last couple of months, both you and I have Red Skeleton Crew, yes. which is the Stephen king anthology that this novella comes yeah, from the first like 120 pages yeah is the myth. and it's it's like a fairly long you know short story it was originally published as part of a dark forces anthology and like a longer unabridged format and then it was included in skeleton crew in 85 and yeah like i just recently listened to it and that's kind of where i was like okay this is really fucking good. This is one of Stephen King's best short stories. As I've mentioned on previous episodes recently, I've been going through a lot of his short story anthologies. There's some really good shit in there. You know, for everyone that I'm like, eh, kind of met on, there's some really fucking good ones. And I was kind of blown away by how good that novella was. And it got me kind of itching to watch the movie again, which is when I kind of suggested to you, like, hey, this might be kind of fun to do. And then we were kind of thinking, like, okay, who do we want to, like, have on as a guest? And you suggested Evan specifically, because this was kind of, like we mentioned earlier, up your alley of what we've brought you on for on previous episodes. Yeah, definitely. Evan, do you have any background with Stephen King? Are you a Stephen King fan? Do you like his movies, hate his books? Like, what, what background? do you have with Stephen King, if any? You know, at the risk of losing some of your listeners, which I don't think will actually happen, I really don't like Stephen King for the most part. There's very few things that I've enjoyed of his. I've tried to read his books. I can't get into it. You're not the first person I met, though, who has said that. Yeah. By the way. I don't know. Yeah. I loved his movies because I've seen movies growing up, but I never really read any Stephen King until I was much older. Yeah. And even then, there's stuff that I don't necessarily jive with. Like, I think he's definitely too nostalgic you know there's too much 1950s like oh simpler times yeah there's some corniness there that i think to varying degrees in his books works or doesn't work you know there is definitely some sticky not with the current times pc stuff that's in some of his older material that we look back on and we're like oh that's kind of questionable yeah the child orgy let's not get around the child orgy and it child orgy and it was unnecessary and that was i think during cocaine times for yeah, well, and another yeah. big criticism is he just fails to stick the landing a lot yeah, of times. That's maybe the biggest thing because there are some things like the Dark Tower 
I just couldn't get into. Sure. I picked it up. I got through the first one entirely, most of the second, and then I was like, I can't do it. And I've tried it a couple of times after that. Yeah. I just can't do it. That's also a huge commitment, too. And that's the most esoteric and the most you had to have read these 20 other things beforehand, too. Yeah. So, I mean, you jumped in the deep end for sure. Yeah. There's other things where I've completed it or a movie and I'm like, oh, it's good. But the ending is kind of, you know, lackluster, something that I think would compare like nowadays to Netflix movie ending. Oh, it was really good until the ending, you know? Yeah. So like overall, it's not that I like actively try to avoid his stuff. You just haven't quite found your in yet. Or exactly. you haven't like found the thing that's worked for you yet. Yeah. But I will say though, I really did enjoy this. And that's not just because I like Tom Jane, but this was really fun. And I'm glad uh, I find myself saying a lot when I watched the movie. Man, I'm glad that y'all called me in for this one because I probably would not have ever watched it had it not been for coming on the episode. And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I'm kind of like you, Evan, at least for a while with Stephen King, where just because I love the movie version of the shining so much like stanley kubrick's i've tried to read the shining in the past and great i haven't tried it many of his mainstays in a while this is all like back in high school and or college and right after college and none of his long form stories have really stuck with me it wasn't really until i started reading his short stories that i actually like i'm one of those people that I think his short stories are a lot better than his main stories. Well, I think that that's just lends me. itself better to kind of what he does. He's very good at coming up with different ideas. Yeah. So I could see that being a little bit better. So maybe I'll check that out and maybe I'll get a compendium. Well, short form horror has proven to be very successful long term. I mean, all the way yeah. back to like Bram Stoker, Lovecraft, Algernon Blackwood, to more modern authors like King, Thomas Ligotti. I mean, there's there's lots of people who kind of thrive in that small format space. Yeah. To me, it's it's not an unproven well that's being tapped there f- format-wise. Well, and, and I feel like you get all of Stephen King in his short story collections because there are certainly a lot of misses as well. Like, yeah. there are some of his short stories that are, like, yeah. unreadable. I, I skip over them all together sometimes. But then you get Stephen King at the prime of his game where you have The Mist or the one that I always go back to, and Aaron and I, you and I have both talked about this one, is The Jaunt. Yeah, The Jaunt's super fucking cool. The Jaunt is one of the best sci-fi horror stories I have like read in a long time. It's phenomenal. And I think the thing about this movie, as far as what happens, the little character interactions from scene to scene, for the most part, it's pretty close to like what happens in the novella. The movie makes Project Arrowhead a little more important. And in the novella, it's only really hinted at and the soldiers are dead before anyone can even talk to them. And I'm glad that the movie still doesn't fully, fully get into the specifics it of it either fully but it, the movie does kind of almost confirm right. that that's where the miscarriage it from. hints very strong of that that's what was going on yeah whereas the novella doesn't at all the mist just kind of yeah. shows up i kind of like that though yeah at the end i definitely found myself saying like i'm glad that they basically kind of said that, yeah that's what it is yeah it works for the movie whereas it's unknown origin works for the novella as well that's the weird thing about this one even with something like the shining you have stephen king who poo-poo's the stanley kubrick shining but then like the Stanley Kubrick shining for the most part it's kind of the same but otherwise it's very different from his actual story I think the nugget of the story like the core of the story is still there 
Yeah. I think a lot of the tonality of that story and kind of the emotional center of the father struggling with his addiction and how that's kind of imprinting on us. Like a lot of the emotional center is not there in the Kubrick movie. Yeah. So I I think like the plot is largely similar, but it's just how he adapted it. That's like completely different. Whereas this is a good example of, oh, you got the content as well as the tone spot on. Right. That's the point I want to make is like, it seems like with a lot of movie verse book Stephen King adaptations one is obviously better than the other usually one has choices that are a lot worse than the other usually whereas this one is an odd duck because and I, I still think the novella overall is is a lot better just because of how important it is to Stephen King's career and just in the realm of short stories I think The Mist has a bigger impact on horror writing than The Mist the movie has on horror movies but otherwise both are pretty competent both honor each other back and forth but both also still do different things but it doesn't ruin it one or the other like the endings are completely different from the novella and from this and i say that about like how important the mist is for horror writing but the reason why the mist movie still kind of is talked about in horror circles is because of that ending yeah, yeah. which is kind of a shame because the rest of the movie is competently yeah. made and it is a pretty good king adaptation it has problems in my opinion which we'll we'll get into later but i find it fascinating that they are both very similar to each other and this is a faithful adaptation while also being very different in key moments and i guess too while we're kind of discussing the actual source material King got this idea while he was at his local grocery store after there was like a major thunderstorm that kind of fucked up the area. He was there with his son to like get groceries and just the thought came to him of what there's fucking monsters that like suddenly come and start attacking the place and we're stuck (laughs) here. What if we're trapped in here? Yeah. (laughs) Which that's something that all three of us can relate to because we all grew up in the middle of fucking (laughs) hurricane and tornado land, right? And so we all know exactly what that's like to be in that weird anxiety cone of this thing is coming. This storm is on its way. We don't know how bad it's actually going to be. And then having to ride that out and then having to deal with the fallout from it afterward. And sometimes seeing how people get at each other's throats Mm -hmm. and a lot of the bad side of humanity that comes out after the fact and just looking for shelter and trying to find and get in contact with people again and not knowing if people are safe or not because you can't call them or whatever. A lot of that is very, very, very much working on all these real life fears and phobias again to go back to kind of the root of you know our whole show that is absolutely stuff that we can all relate to on this call right now yeah i definitely found myself thinking at the beginning uh scene like man that sucks because i've been through that multiple times yeah okay now the real tragedy and drama and stress and anxiety of that post-storm is in fixing everything and insurance claims. And then at the end of the movie, I found myself thinking the same thing, going like, this is going to be a really shitty insurance claim to make. (laughs) How do I prove what alien creature destroyed my house? Like, I don't know. 
how I go about that. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the aftermath is always way worse and tedious and more of a pain in the ass and just more like frustrating to deal with than the actual fucking thing itself. Well, and it's funny you brought up storms and hurricanes and kind of what we all grew up with, because yes, you're absolutely right. And Evan, I know for a fact you've told me stories like this, too. Fuck, I remember there was one hurricane in New Orleans where we went to my dad's office because it was way more secure. And it was eerie because it had that liminal space, you know, empty office yeah. building. So you have the backrooms vibe already going. Yeah, I remember you bringing this up way earlier on our show. Yeah. Yeah. But then you had a hurricane outside because this movie also is kind of just the floor is yeah. lava outside is the general idea of the story and of this movie. The floor is lava. If you go out there and you stay out there for any period of time, you're fucked. And that's such an easy primal fear to like capitalize on and make a movie about and write a story about. And that's why the mist works so well is because it's so simple of an idea, but he, he like wrote it so well and this movie capitalizes on it so well. But it's funny you mentioned hurricanes all that because one of the stars, I want to say it was Laurie Holden uh, who plays Amanda, the, the school teacher with the gun. She mentioned that during production, she was trying to figure out how to compare it to like what refugees were experiencing when they were trapped in the Superdome during yeah. Katrina and like how that de-escalated into like a fucking shit show, literally and figuratively. And I found that fascinating because I think that is a, a big key moment of like what fears and phobias this movie does capitalize on. Because I've had that thought of what if I was in a grocery store or the mall or somewhere just mundane, you've been to dozens of times before and some disaster happens where you have to stay inside there for a, an uncomfortable amount of time with strangers away from any of your loved ones. And they're in the same situation. And like the longer you're there, the more and more intense yeah. that feeling is going to get and so like yeah that's that's exactly what this movie is that's just the basic primal fear like we could get into how this isn't a post 9-11 post two-term bush america when this movie came not out. post two-term bush i know i mean it was in the, it was towards the end of the yeah, second term. that's the yeah. thing that's kind of wild to remember is this was 2007 so this was before yeah. the recession this was before Obama's election, this was very much in the middle of the Bush presidency, which is a lot of where Darabont drew inspiration from. That's what I was going to say is a lot like this movie and a lot of early, mid and late aughts horror movies. There's that dark cynicism, oh, yeah. like openly dark cynicism in a lot of horror movies, because this was a horror movie that was I remember it being marketed and it got a wide release in theaters and everything. And like when you think about it, it is almost a digestible, fucked up dark yeah. movie. It's not trying to be exploitative it's not trying to be like right. shocker they don't show you the actual acts of like some of the terrible things that happen but the things happen and you know what's happening and it's fucked up it is kind of like baby's first dark movie that mind fucks you by the end and which i thought was also interesting well that's also one of the interesting things in regard to like the controversy around the ending and how like fucking bleak the ending is darabont even said i don't get it I don't get why everybody's freaking out about this. We're literally in the middle of a time, and it was like so obvious then at the moment. We are in the middle of a period where the most popular horror movies are torture porn and French extremist yeah. stuff. Like, that's kind of the popular shit going on right now. This movie is kind of fucking child's play by comparison. Why is everybody freaking out about the ending of this movie? You know? I think this movie is more serious about it than those. That's the thing. Oh, for sure. Sure, well, yeah. I think it also hit a nerve because the anxieties that this movie's dealing with were the anxieties that all of us were dealing with at the time. 
There was so much anxiety around the state of the country, like post 9-11, like you were saying. There was so much distrust and suspicion and paranoia regarding the government and what was going on and what was actually happening and who was really doing what. And were we being told the truth? Because this was also right around the time that a lot of the stuff that happened in the early part of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was starting to come out. We were finding out shit about Abu Ghraib and Blackwater and all this fucked up stuff that was going on. The torture programs were like finally being kind of blown open. No weapons of mass destruction. No weapons of mass destruction, right? Like it was a lot of that that was just like, holy shit. But then there was also this huge uptick in religious fundamentalism that was happening around the same time. Like a lot of those anxieties were there. A lot of the distrust of corporations, which is a very common recurring theme in horror movies, also there, right? Evan, I I want to know like if you felt this way specifically too as i do and really mansell too but specifically you Evan, watching this now in 2023 post-covid post-trump president this movie feels even more like a cynical gut punch mm-hmm. this movie is aged well but well aged well is a hard term to use but it's become more relevant now than ever which kind of fucking sucks especially when we've been inside yeah. during a pandemic for so long no i think you know the really interesting thing with just the way that history unfolds it seems like every 20 years or so what is happening the thought process and the ways that we call out and challenge what is going on and what our governments are doing kind of comes back around and is very similar. You know, as a history teacher, it never fails to surprise me every semester when I'm getting ready to teach American history where, okay, there's always a new current event to compare to what has happened in the past. Sure. I mean, you could look at it right now. Okay. So while I was watching this movie, a, you know, for now, unidentified aircraft was being shot down over Lake Huron. And we have yet and will probably not get any definitive answer as to what that was. So what is that, right? Maybe it's something super innocent. You know, we were joking earlier and I was like, it's probably just a dude who has a drone and wanted to check out the lake because he's bored and we shot it down. We don't know. What is it the government is hiding? My take that we discussed was it could just be drug smuggling. Yeah. But we don't know. We're not being told the details, right? Exactly. And anytime, <laughs> especially when we start using what is a very expensive and dangerous military complex to shoot things down actively in our own airspace, the entire public, or at least people who are paying attention to current events, is going to be worried about that. We're going to look yeah. at that and go, they're hiding something. Because if they weren't, if there was nothing to hide, then they would come out and say, oh, it was a drone that is smuggling drugs, or it was something that wasn't supposed to be in our airspace, and we deemed it a threat, but it's nothing that is going to be you know, overly dangerous. Don't be concerned about it. That's not what they're doing. So that is going to always harness this distrust, which is really at the center of this entire movie. And again, the ending, I thought was, it is super bleak, but it's really good because it's almost a slap in the face to people who will be distrusting of the government and these situations. And it's this director's commentary. And what he's doing is trying to prove that we should be distrustful. But the way things play out, man, the people who kind of thought in the opposite vein of that are the ones who make out the best. 
you know, and I wouldn't, everything wrapped up, I'm thinking to myself, oh, if I was in that situation, I probably would have made the same decisions yeah. as Tom Jane's character, right? Yeah. Because I'm thinking like, no matter what it is, whether it's our government or not, it's fucked and we need to do something because if we don't, we're all going to end up dead, right? You know, as we get to what happens in the end, not necessarily how things go down. So I thought it was just a really good play on, oh, we know this where this is going and then maybe not. Well, to take your entire idea one more step further, if we're talking about let's look at current events and let's think about some of the things that are going on right now. I mean, this will date this episode one way or another, right? <laughs> are you about to a massive up the train Ohio? derailment? Yeah. And that town is literally being poisoned. That's another perfect example of a small town adversely affected by this thing. The people there don't know what's going on. Nobody has answers. The government is definitely not giving us details. We don't know how bad this is going to be. Also, it's literally a fucking giant cloud full of evil. Like, it's yes. the same shit, right? It is a 200 mile wide black <laughs> cloud. You know, yeah, yeah like yep. speaking to like distrust of the government and corporations and all this shit that's going on. The whole situation's fucked. And like, it doesn't matter what your political leanings are because right. all the safety stuff was stripped under the Trump presidency. Exactly. And yeah. the unions were like, yeah, we want to get rid of a lot of safety shit. And then Biden's also put the whole weight of the government on the unions to get back to work. We don't care about your fucking sick time and your lack of staff and everything else. No matter how you cut it, yep. everybody's fucking responsible for what happened and it's fucked, you know? And it's just one of those inevitable, this is going to be fucking bad and we don't know where this is going. Like that anxiety is so fucking terrifying. And that's one of the things that this movie 100% is capitalizing on because this is the kind of real life shit that happens that we all are living through and have lived through and that's what this movie is clamping on to so fucking hard i think the thesis of this movie is just one word distrust mm -hmm. it's not hard to see yeah. what's going on right off the bat like distrust your neighbor distrust of other humanity if we want to go about like what happens to his neighbor and how his neighbor kind of is in denial the whole time distrust of reality mm -hmm. like the reality that's of reality in front yeah of him. And one of the characters says you wouldn't believe that everything is on fucking fire if you were on fire yourself right yeah. like you wouldn't believe there was a problem whatever yeah. you know like you know the saying and then the the funny thing about like the distress of the government I don't know if this was done on purpose or not, and maybe I'm reading maybe too much into this, but like I thought it was interesting that a lot of the people who had like turned to the like religious fanaticism towards the end of the movie with uh, Mrs. Carmody, they decide to sacrifice that one soldier who's still alive. And I, I thought when that was happening, I was like, the irony of this whole situation is most of these people, because most of them are like portrayed as working class Americans in a small town. And I was like, I bet these are the people for the last several years, like support the troops, support the troops, <laughs> yeah, yeah. pray for the troops, support the troops. And then within 48 hours, they all get fucking mind fucked by the monsters outside and this religious nut job who some of them were even saying like at the beginning of this movie, oh, no one pays her mind. She's the town crazy lady. The William yeah. Sadler character was literally talking shit about her. And then you see he's yeah. the one screaming the loudest, right? Yeah. yeah. They turn immediately on this private. If you know anything about the military, privates don't know fucking dick about anything that's happening. They just take out their distrust and anger of the government, quote unquote by stabbing him and then throwing his ass outside to be... Well, I think that also goes to show a little bit of commentary on how easily people in the masses can be swayed to believe one thing, right? 
because all of those people were so obviously, oh, this chick's crazy. And then, like you said, Derek, probably less than 48 hours. They're like, oh, yeah, this is the way to go. Yeah, she's been yeah. right all along. Yeah, And that that's the aggravating thing is she's been obviously the crazy one. She's been wrong about literally everything this entire time. She never changes her attitude no. throughout the entire movie either. Like, that's the crazy. But push comes to shove when there is actually a situation She's right one time, yep. and everybody falls in line and believes her. Yeah, yep. And like, she's kind of hot, so like, <laughs> I would have followed hot crazy chick. I'm just saying. Well, you know what's funny is I think if I remember correctly in the novella, she's like, oh, she's a crone, right? Yeah, yeah, she's like a crone. Yeah, she's like an old hag. So it is kind of funny that they casted her as younger well, like that. Yeah, yeah. Marsha Gay Harden is a way more relatable. We all know that Karen for Jesus. <laughs> right, you know what I yeah. mean? Who's like out there? Like it's it's yeah. way more relatable than creepy old crone lady you know like we might all know somebody like that too but the jesus karen's a real thing that we all have experienced for sure so something that i like going into this movie because like reading through the novella i remember thinking the same thing and the novella makes almost a little bit easier or more believable rather and with the movie like after i watched it i was wondering like okay but would the character amanda even says in the movie i was like would it really happen this quickly we're all like confused and afraid but we're like trying to make this work to like 48 hours later like throw the boy into the mist like must sacrifice we've all seen it it's happened so many times which is why this is believable <laughs> yeah so like when i was watching the movie i was just like oh no i don't know about that i don't know it would go that quickly but like the more i thought about it afterwards i was just fucking donald trump memed his way into being a president Dude. by like being right maybe once or twice yeah of course this could happen and four years later we literally had a mob try to overthrow the fucking government yeah it happens like oh, that, and, you know. And so on a on a micro scale, but to show you how quick this can happen, right? So one of the things I do with my history class when we get to the Cold War, I uh, start class, I split them into a group, and I call one of the students from each group into the hallway, and then I just pretend like I'm checking in on them. Hey, what's going on? This is a new thing I'm starting. I just wanted to, you know. Hey, if you had anything to talk about, are you cool with my class? Whatever, whatever. Random BS. And then I put them back into their groups and I give them all a deck of cards. And I tell them, all you have to do to win this activity is make the biggest standing house of cards in five minutes. Whatever group has the biggest house of cards in five minutes wins. But there is one person in each group who is a communist. And if you do not eliminate the communist in five minutes by voting him or her off, then it doesn't matter how big your house of cards is, you're going to lose. Oh, God, do you turn them into, uh, like, what's his fuck, the guy who, like, condemned people who were communists? <laughs> Joseph McCarthy. Whoa, awesome. Ah, take that, you little witch. <laughs> I trapped you, you stupid Varmint. It's Joe McCarthy. Cool. Yeah, eat your glitter. You love it. Hey, come here, baby cakes. <gasps> you know my name, Joe? Sure. Witches and wizards need to be hunted hard. Or else they'll outnumber us regular guys and turn us all into party slaves. Oh, is a party slave what I think it is? Worse. I need you to save humanity and trap all the witches. So... Will you? Uh... 
I'll do it, Joe. Exactly. McCarthy. Yes. Yeah, you basically turn them into McCarthy's. Most of the time, I get one group or so every now and then who doesn't vote anyone off. But for the most part, I'll get a group that immediately is like, oh, it's definitely them. <laughs> it's always the wrong person. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. the whole thing is the people that I took outside, they're like, I have no idea what this person is talking about. But all of the other people in that group think, well, it's got to be these people because he took them outside and talked to them. So all of those people almost every time get voted out. And at the end, it's like, guess what? There wasn't a communist. And all of you basically sacrificed someone from your group for no reason other than you thought that that was a reality. That is how quickly it can turn. Within four seconds of me giving instructions and then taking those kids outside, immediately it was like, oh yeah, we're voting that motherfucker out of here. Well, and on that note, as far as inspirations for this go, I can't say that King maybe wasn't inspired by this and that he didn't see this. I know that Darabont was specifically because he specifically mentions being inspired by this, but there is a Twilight Zone episode called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which is one of the most well-known episodes yeah, that's of a good one. Twilight Zone. It specifically is about how this one neighborhood devolves into like crazy murder paranoia after just a few daily norms are like thrown into disarray. It's Pete Van Horn. Pete Van Horn. Well, he was just going over to the next block to see if the power was on. Charlie, you killed him. He's dead. I didn't know who he was. I most certainly didn't know who he was. Well, he came out of the darkness. How was I supposed to know who he was? How was I supposed to know he wasn't a monster or something? He was only trying to protect my home and know it was somebody we knew. So again, think about how that same kind of pressure happens after hurricanes, COVID, etc., right? All of the electronics stop working. The cars won't crank. The lights won't turn on. Charlie, the lights just went on in your house. Why did the lights go on in your house? What about it, Charlie? How come you're the only one with lights now? That's what I'd like to know. You're so quick to kill Charlie, and so quick to tell us who we had to look out for. Well, maybe you had to kill. Maybe Pete there was trying to tell us something. Maybe Pete learned something and came back to tell us who it was amongst us we had to look out for. No! No, it's nothing of the sort! I didn't know the lights on, I swear I didn't! Somebody's pulling a gag or something! One little kid says, oh, well, it's probably aliens. I saw it in this comic book. And the aliens plan was they put one family who was aliens to like scout out the area. So then everybody's paranoid about like, what if that's going on? That seems crazy, right? So you have one chunk of people who are listening to this kid talking about fucking aliens from a comic book. And the other chunk of people that are like, it's fine. Nothing's wrong. The electricity is just out. Whatever. Look, I swear it isn't me. I know who it is. I know who the monster is. I know who it is that doesn't belong among us. All right, Charlie, let's hear it. it. It's a kid. It's Tommy. He's the one. Oh, that's not true. It isn't so. It was this kid who knew what was going to happen. He was the one who knew. How did he know? How could he have known? Make How did you know, Tommy? What's the matter with you people now? Stop. How did you know? How did you know?
And little by little, it's things like, oh, Joe stays up late a lot and is like doing weird shit in his garage. What do we think about that? Oh, this person said XYZ to me earlier and they all kind of slowly turn on each other. It's basically what's he building in there, the Tom Waits. Yeah. The fucking right? poem. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's that sound from underneath the door? He's pounding nails into a hardwood floor. And I swear to God, I heard someone moaning low. And I keep seeing the blue light of a TV show. He has a router and a table saw. And you won't believe what Mr. Stitches saw. There's poison underneath the sink, of course. But there's also enough formaldehyde to choke a horse. What's he building in there? What the hell is he building in there? Then the twist is, after this whole fucking neighborhood falls apart, then you literally see aliens and their UFO on top of a hill that are like, haha, see, that's all it took. We just make them distrust each other and they'll basically take each other out and we can yep. just take over the world <laughs> that way. Easy. Understand the procedure now. Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. Throw them into darkness for a few hours and then sit back and watch the pattern. And this pattern is always the same? With few variations. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. All we need do is sit back and watch. Then I take it this place, this Maple Street, is not unique? By no means. Their world is full of Maple Streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other. One to the other. You don't have much faith in humanity, do you? None whatsoever. I can't accept that. People are basically good, decent. Oh my God, David, we're a civilized society. Sure, as long as the machines are working and you can dial 911, but you take those things away, you throw people in the dark, you scare the shit out of them. No more rules. You'll see how primitive they get. You scare people badly enough, you can get them to do anything. They'll turn to whoever promises a solution. Or whatever. King wrote this in, this was one of those first short stories, wasn't it, Aaron? Published originally in 1980. Yeah, 1980. Yeah. So it's interesting that all of that stuff, like all the stuff that happens in the movie, for the most part, even though he only hints at Project Arrowhead, he is showing like, hey, there's weird government shit happening up the road that might somehow be tied yeah. to this, even in that short story. This movie came out in 2007, worked then, and now in 2023, it arguably works even more now because like religious fanaticism hasn't stopped. If anything, it's gotten worse. Yeah, well, I mean, that, and that's always going to be a theme. I yeah. mean, prior to 1950, this probably wouldn't have worked because really, for the most part, most people trusted the government. When we get into, like I was mentioning, McCarthyism post-World War II, now we're deep into the Cold War. Uh, and really, when we start hitting with now we're taking action and we're getting involved in Asia yeah. and Vietnam, there, Watergate, yeah. like it just kind of all snowballs. Yeah. And that is going to be really the first point where people are like, yeah, fuck the government. They don't tell us the truth. <laughs> and that's really the first point where most Americans are facing that reality that like, whoa, they are definitely not telling us everything that's going on. Also, side note, it is the UFOs. It is actually 100% these crafts that we're shooting down are aliens. I can confirm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, buddy. Anyway. <laughs>
Well, and and again, I I think it's interesting too because both in the novella and this, the people that are ultimately the victims, but also the perpetrators of the crazy fanaticism, are the working class. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it it sounds like it was just again people just not paying attention, overlooking certain policies that they had or whatever. Scientists probably just being like, "Oopsie daisies, we opened a portal to another world." Yep. Here's killer insects Whoops. everywhere. So if we're still kind of <laughs> discussing the novella versus the movie, that is something that Darabont wrote specifically. And again, they chose to keep it out of the movie to keep it more ambiguous as far as like where these things came from and everything else. But he wrote a scene in one of the earlier screenplays, an earlier draft where we see the people in a government facility with some type of machine. Yeah, I'm glad they cut that. They turn it on. One of the people's like, should we be doing this during a thunderstorm? Oh, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And then like the machinery all gets fucked up because it gets lightning struck and then turn the machine off, turn the machine off. Oh, we can't. It's drawing power naturally now. We can't stop it. And then we cut to the town. Right. Yeah. And I want to say Andre Brower, while he was having dinner with Darabont, was like, you should cut that. Just yeah. take that out. Just eliminate that. So they did. And there's a couple of other things that they asked to like, there's like an extra marital affair between David and Amanda. That It's unnecessary. I'm glad Just, they cut that's that the out. stuff. Cut yeah. it. We don't need that stuff. Yeah. Well, the thing I hated about it in the novella, because it does a good job in this movie for the most part, but like the novella really hammers home him and his wife and his son. They have the best family. They fucking yeah. love the hell out it of each other. No sense. He's yeah. such a dad and, and loves being a husband. And then within 24 hours, he's sleeping with this hot yeah. teacher. Trauma fucking is a story trope that I'm just fucking done with, whatever. I mean, to be fair, there was no way to know if his wife was alive or not. So he could have been totally in the okay area there. <laughs> well, it it is funny by the way, because like the, the person that they cast as Amanda goes on to become a big part of Walking Dead. Yeah, and the other guy too. Yeah, the woman in the very beginning who like yeah. leaves to go find her children. We'll talk more about that. There's a lot of crossover. Which I would have been that woman, honestly, at the very beginning, to be honest with you. See, that's the one thing I didn't like about this. I didn't like how they threw that in his face. Yeah, they didn't need to show her at the very end. I thought that was almost a little was like, too... We already got the point, bro. We get it. So let's talk about that for a second, because the original ending was also going to feature the survivors in the jeep driving past melissa mcbride's character the one like she's literally credited as woman with kids at home right yeah (laughs) yeah they drive past her dead body and it's all like webbed up with the spider goop so that was the original idea but there's something about having her survive unharmed and be reunited with her kids successfully that's so much more fucking like heart-wrenching and so much more of a fuck you which jeffrey demun the actor who like runs in initially and says there's something in the mist that guy is the one who suggested hey let's make this one last minute change to the end and it's such a fucking gut punch it is i just think it's in the movie universe it's not realistically fair because that dude had just run from the mist and been all fucked up and everyone that goes in after is immediately eviscerated. But I think that's some of the mystery of it, too. And some of the, like, we don't have all the information. Right. We have all the yeah. facts. Like, we don't know what's yeah. actually going on with it. You know, kind of mystery to it. So yeah. on, on that note, though, and something I'm, I'm glad going back to, like, they cut out that intro scene where <clears throat> the scientists fuck up and open up the portal. 
Glad they cut that out because honestly, all I needed was them talking about kind of Project Arrowhead with the soldier. Yeah. And that was it. That's all I needed. Maybe it has to do with that. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? And I'm glad the novella doesn't even go that far because I don't honestly don't care where the mist comes from. And honestly, the more you expose the mist, the worse the movie is because the more they showed the actual creatures up close, they kind of looked fucking terrible. Like, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, I loved the creature designs when it was in the outline in the mist and you couldn't really see what they actually look like. They're almost like a no. Cthulhu monsters once they were actually like fighting the giant spiders or like the tentacle monster was coming out it looked bad and that was one of my gripes about this movie and I think another gripe I had was maybe not a gripe but I do agree with you Evan I don't necessarily need to see her dead body but I don't know if I needed to see her reunited with her kids at the end too because then it it also makes me question the mechanics of the mist again Aaron I know you're talking about the mystery of it but like this movie is very inconsistent and the story is to a degree but like this movie especially is inconsistent with how the mist works because in some parts if you even step outside for a few feet you're fucked yep. whereas you have other people like towards the end when they're running to the cars as long as they would have stayed together as a group they yeah. all would have been fine they make it to the car no problem well and it seems like too the way they treat the cars the insects are too scared to attack them in the car and like you said if everyone would have just ran out to their cars they all could have caravaned you know until yeah that's another thing is like none of these bigger monsters like the big praying man thing like that can't take down a car well okay. and the one that they show that is so big that it is shaking everything as if it's an earthquake the behemoth yeah yeah i don't know it, it definitely was just inconsistent and i think it wasn't fair to throw that in his face i totally get what the director was doing that's but... where i thought it tried to be calm almost comic right dark and bleak that's where i was like you're on the fence of like this being almost too ridiculous of a dark ending i'll be honest that's the kind of stuff that i have no problem hanging like i'm already watching a movie about an evil extra dimensional mist with monsters in it so i'm not necessarily super hanging up on all these kind of details i think Y'all are both cinema sensing this movie a little bit much. We are, but I think it's fair. You know what? It was mean and screw Melissa McBride for doing that. Because (laughs) that was just uncalled for to my boy. That's part of why I think that ending is so bleak. Not just, oh, he did murder everybody but then the immediate punch in the nuts of if you had waited fucking 10 more minutes you know if y'all had just waited a little bit longer that's always the like disappointment monkey's paw kind of fuck you that works with these kind of stories is when you give up hope when you finally like let go of hope and just choose to like embrace the fucking darkness is always when things go bad if you just keep hope alive a little bit longer like there's always a chance you know again though he promises his kid that he's not going to let the monsters get him i mean he he makes sure of that (laughs) yeah i know that's what i'm saying like he is the monster don't you get it (laughs) what thomas jane never and i i think both things are right i think maybe evan and i are just being a little nitpicky at mechanics in a story that like never it's not about the mechanics of the story itself but like we are kind of being that way and and to that degree like if i think about it like if i'm in that situation i would have hey like let's just camp out in this car for an hour or two or even like let's sleep on it for a second before we make that decision the decision was definitely pretty immediate like all right yeah it happens almost immediately granted they weren't able to get the fucking groceries and the supplies that they needed but like you still got a little while before like you are at the brink of starvation well and they're all surrounded by cars on the highway they're all surrounded by a ton of cars just make a break for one of the cars well and, and there wasn't any you know like of the giant insects yet so like 
hey, maybe we'll hang out until they're about to kill us. And then I'll, you know, I'll make you eat the bullets then. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's nitpicky. Like, yeah. as far as what the actual movie is trying to say, like, I think yeah. it makes sense, yeah. like the way it ends. That's why I go back because I do remember back when it was coming out, it was heavily marketed. I remember it being out in theaters everywhere. And I do think it's interesting that this feels like a digestible baby's first fucked up bleak ending movie in a lot of ways for some reason that that's just the way it feels to me while still having like that kind of glossy kind of shine that a lot of these aughts yeah. movies have but also that weird cynicism from like the mid-aughts post 9-11 i also find it really interesting that again going back to the different tom jane or actor connections you know in 2004 he did the punisher where i think he did a really good job and a lot of that emotional appeal is his family is killed and then in 2007, the emotional appeal really is, I'm going to have to kill my family or my son and what is acting as my family now. And he just fucking murders them. And then he's kind of the reason there. So I thought that was really interesting that almost back to back, he has like a total 180. Well, and it's funny too, because like this is an odd time for horror movies yeah. in general. This is an odd time for superhero movies because this is after Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, but still way before the MCU. Yeah. Isn't that weird mid period? Yeah, this is one where they're taking wild swings with superhero things where it's pretty different from the comics. And sometimes the swings yeah. are ambitious and kind of work like the Punisher 2004 kind of works. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I, very different. I think it's a good movie. But then you have Catwoman or a Daredevil. And yeah, then it's just like, Ooh, you, you went a little too far. Very good. And I, I think it's the same thing with horror movies. And it's it, it is interesting because this movie was relatively well received when it came out, it seems. Not crazy good reviews, but it's one of those movies that's stayed in the zeitgeist. And if anything has gotten better with age, yeah. uh, as far as horror acceptance, by the way, because we, we have been talking to death about the anxieties that this movie is getting on. And I don't remember the novella being this much in, into it besides the soldiers kind of, I guess, trigger warning. This movie has a lot of suicides in it. Yeah, no, there was a lot of that in the novella, too. Yeah, I, I only remembered the soldiers in the novella. I didn't remember like the other woman and a great yeah. the ending I knew was changed for this. Um, now, there, there was definitely some of that in the novella as well but ultimately as far as like reviews go at the time i saw this in theaters matter of fact rob and i saw this he was the only person i could convince to come with me you know because everybody else was like oh that movie just looks dumb whatever yeah talking about marketing yeah this yeah. felt like it was kind of towards the end of some of the shit we expect with odds horror while there was a lot of marketing around this film i don't remember it doing this film well, justice couple things on that rob was the only person i could convince to come with me he was like oh it's a stephen king adaptation like sure those are generally pretty good and this was at a time where we're all too young we all missed the heyday of the 80s stephen king adaptations right we missed all that early chunk we grew up during the 90s where it was like all the made for tv miniseries adaptations that were generally all garbage right but there was this point in the aughts right about now that there were some adaptations of his more low-key stuff like this and 1408 where it was like okay cool there's some stephen king shit kind of coming back rob was the only person i could convince to come with me dreamcatcher was a mess yeah dreamcatcher not one <laughs> yeah but yeah like we went and saw it and both of us were like okay that was pretty fucking good and i noticed afterward looking at reviews 
pretty much everybody that bashed it either brought up endings too bleak. I hated the ending. Can't believe they put this ending on the movie. The ending ruins the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. Or they would specifically compare it to Darabont's other Stephen King adaptations, which we'll dig more into that in a second. But you can't fucking compare this at all to the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. They are not at all the same (laughs) story-wise, tonally. They are not at all the same thing. That's literally being like, I don't like XYZ horror movie because it's not like this historical tale of human endurance kind of like it's it's not at all the same thing but yeah ultimately like this ending is the one that was always scripted it's the one that darabont always had in mind he had it written down years before they actually made the movie stephen king even fucking approved of it because he and stephen king were tight at this point again he made arguably two of the best stephen king adaptations so like he and stephen king they worked together i mean and the shawshank redemption a lot of people say is the greatest movie of all time yeah not just best stephen king movie but like it was like the top rated imdb movie for a long time it's a good movie slow your roll dog oh no no i agree with you i don't think it's the greatest movie of all time but a lot of people do there's a lot of nostalgia for that movie and it's one that also played on cable non-stop yeah, while we were growing up all the time our fucking parents loved that movie right i think remember the titans would have something to say about that <laughs> you know it's it's one of those things where he had been wanting to adapt the mist since the 80s like he literally wanted that to be his directorial debut which Darabont himself again he's arguably like the most successful translator of Stephen King's work Rob Reiner was really on the ball with it for a couple of years doing Stand By Me and Misery and then now like Mike Flanagan is kind of the dude who's understands King fundamentally and is doing some good stuff but yeah I mean like in general Darabont is a good screenwriter I mean, and he has a lot of horror bona fides already. I mean, he co-wrote The Blob with Chuck Russell, did The Fly 2, he did some Tales from the Crypt, he did a lot of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which... That movie, or not that movie, that show keeps coming up on our show. Keeps coming up, keeps coming up. Like, I'm gonna have to fucking dig into that once I have all my, like, movies unpacked again. He did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and he wrote and directed The Majestic, which is another one of these kind of early aughts dramas that a lot of people like. But he's been a script doctor for years, too. I mean, he did work on The Rocketeer, Eraser, The Fan. He's the dude who suggested to Steven Spielberg that you open Saving Private Ryan with the storming of Normandy. Genius level kind of shit, right? He also did Minority Report, Collateral, Mission Impossible 3. Like, he did touch-ups on all these things. Him being involved with the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles got him the gig to write what was the original version of the fourth Indiana Jones movie when it was still called Indiana Jones and the City of the Gods before it became Kingdom of the Crystal Skull once George Lucas was like, I'm going to rewrite this. And then obviously he was the key contributor to the foundation of The Walking Dead when that show first started. And that is now like juggernaut huge thing, right? Okay, so that's where that comes in then. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, Evan, too, and Mansfield. Not only just with the crossover of the cast, thematically and feeling, the energy of this movie feels like a proto walking dead show and this movie was in 07 when the walking dead comic i think had been going on for about three years at this point by 2007 but it was nowhere near the cultural zeitgeist it became oh no it was well into its run before really until the show came out it was not huge yeah Yeah. and and so it's interesting that 
so much of the Walking Dead energy that worked for so many people later on was already yeah, in this yeah. movie, and this movie wasn't as explosive, I guess, at the time it dropped. Now, let me blow your mind. What if, instead of whoever the hell plays Rick, Tom Jane as Rick? You say that. You say that. Thomas Jane was Darabont's original choice to play Rick Grimes. Was he really? Yes. That would have been... Wow. I don't mean to throw a whole bunch of shade at that guy, because I think he did a good job, but Coral. that would have been legit. Man, that would have been good. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Coral! Coral. <laughs> I, I didn't really find an answer to it, because I didn't dig into, like, The Walking right, Dead. Yeah. I wasn't looking up shit for The Walking Dead, yep. but I did read that that was specifically, like, because they worked on this movie, he wanted him to play Rick Grimes, yeah. Man. What was it about 1980, by the way, with The Mist and The Fog? Because The Fog yeah. also came out in 1980. Yeah. And The Mist was written in 1980. And I don't know. It must have been some crazy weather events going on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's it's just the weird timing confluence of those things happening at the same time, but having nothing to do with each other right, yeah. and influencing each other. Kind of like we talked about earlier with The Girl with All the Gifts and The Last of Us. Coming yeah. out the same year as The Last of Us and having the same exact cordyceps style zombies. And that had never been done before, right? <laughs> really? Yeah, sometimes that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. just happens like just happens yeah. yeah it's crazy yeah so the other thing about Darabont specifically is you know he wanted to direct sure but like he's always been passionate about writing he directed one of the very first Stephen King dollar baby projects um, which Evan for you Stephen King's always kind of had this deal where like anybody that wants to adapt one of his short stories as lesser known or like whatever they can literally pay a dollar to secure the rights to it as long as they like for sure show commitment to like I want to see this thing through yeah. right and so it's been a way that a lot of these smaller movies have happened and people have done short films and TV show adaptations of these and everything else so anyway Darabont did one of the first ones in 1984 did a 30 minute adaptation of the woman in the room and then from there again he wrote nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors with chuck russell they went on to do the blob did the shawshank redemption that was his directorial yeah. debut and then did the green mile both of which were nominated for multiple academy awards including best picture and adapted screenplay for him right but the mist again was one that he had been wanting to direct since the 80s and it was just an issue of the timing never working the money never working the effects not being ready Right. right yeah. But this was one of the things where, again, because he had a good relationship with King by this point, King specifically granted him adaptation rights, which is interesting because that rarely happens where like a specific writer is given the rights to right. a story unless the studio entity is right. He started working on the script proper in 2004 when it was still with Paramount. He'd end up landing at Dimension Films which was undergoing transition from the Miramax Disney umbrella to the Weinstein Company one, which, yay, another instance of, of course, that's why this movie had <laughs> yeah. so much production yeah. trouble, because the Weinsteins were involved. Yeah. But the ending was the one that he always had in mind. Yeah. And King approved. The Weinsteins fucking begged him to change the ending to something more optimistic, even offering to double the budget of the movie. Damn. But because he felt so strong about the ending... And King approved of the ending. He stuck to his guns around this, right? The quote is, every generation needs a movie like Night of the Living Dead where nothing turns out well for anybody in the end. Darabont had just come off directing an episode of The Shield. And so he knew, like, okay, cool. I can do a very 
stripped down, no nonsense, efficient, quick, on the cheap version of this. Like, I can make that happen. Fuck it. I'll take half the budget to keep my ending. I can do this, right? He even brought on the crew of The Shield during their eight-week hiatus to come in and film this thing, give it that slightly documentary handheld kind of look. The only catch was he had to give up his salary in order to guarantee the ending he wanted. So, like, not only did he give up double the budget, but he gave up his own fucking paycheck to make this movie the way he wanted. Well, and I I think it was the right choice because, again, I think this movie's legacy stands by its bleakness and the way it ends. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it was definitely the right choice to make. Obviously, I haven't read the short story, but like y'all are explaining, I think it makes it way more memorable, especially in that media, right? In a film where everything that you are showing the audience is going to be that much more emotionally grabbing and visceral because we're seeing it and it's a visual thing and we're hearing it and seeing it as opposed to just reading it. Something that, I mean, it's probably going to live on, I would imagine, for a long time. I mean, it kind of has already. It yeah. definitely has a reputation now as yeah. one of the better horror movies of that entire decade. Right. Yeah. And one of one of the better examinations, too, again, of the Bush era, yeah. period, because there's also a lot of politics behind this movie. Even just looking at the three groups that form in this, this story, like, you have the religious fanatical group. You have David's group, Tom Jane's group. They are like maybe a little left leaning, but more Correct. like sound of mind and okay with they've come to terms with the situation. Now they're being proactive. And then you have his neighbors, Brent's group, who are almost so skeptical that they're denying what's in reality. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that was kind of on purpose, right? To show you that there's going to be different groups of people who handle this differently. And in that group specifically, maybe they're not skeptical skeptical anymore maybe they're so scared that they choose to believe that it's not happening yeah they're in denial right yeah and so the other thing that i found fascinating and granted i don't think i am at all as a a white guy i don't think i am at all qualified about this kind of commentary and maybe all three of us are not qualified for this i find it fascinating the casting of brent as being like the only person of color in this entire movie and he's the one who is kind of at arms against the rest of the community and the community is kind of at arms against him either and it's not because of the skin of his color it's more that like oh he's a big city attorney he was involved with right. a civil case against david or and like the locals don't trust him as this big city attorney but aaron i wanted to ask it was that purposeful casting or was that again like a night of the living dead uh, andre brower is like the best person for this role because he's just because andre brower is a badass actor from everything i've seen and read no he just got cast because that's who Darabont wanted. Now, like you just said, in the novella, that character is the outsider. He is the guy from the big city that just goes yeah, out to yeah. his country house in Maine on the weekends. He's wealthy and has kind of the like, I'm better than everybody else here kind of attitude. During one of the argument scenes, right, there is a slight kind of racial subtext that's thrown in there. That's what I felt. That was ad-libbed by Brower, and it worked perfectly to make everybody else in that scene slightly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because it just adds that third layer onto you're already the outsider in this group. He kind of took it to that next level there, and it wasn't necessary for the story 100%, but it really, really sets him apart in that moment too. And I think it's important to throw a little bit of that in there because let's not deny that that is still one of the things that people in this country fucking fight about and lose 
lose a shit about because they can't stand living next to people who are not just like them, right? right? So I think it was an effective way to like call out that distinction and still acknowledge, hey, here's one of the things we're talking about without having to like go so on the nose in terms of let's make this token person of color in this cast basically the center for all of that. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because I remember in the novella, Brent is a lot more lecherous and incompetent than he is in this movie. In this movie, he seems a lot more commanding. And while he's not in this movie that long, I'd say my two favorite characters were him and Ollie, Ollie yeah. uh, the supermarket assistant. You stole my thunder, man. <laughs> I know, Ollie. Dude, When after I watched this movie, I was like, I guarantee yes. Evan's favorite character is fucking Ollie. Okay, we spent so much time talking about like all oh, the seriousness of the movie and everything. But I think really the most important theme here is that the common man, it can be an important person in a time of need and emergency and Ollie is fucking there, man. The most unassuming yeah. at the beginning. And he's the only person who's level-headed. Too. Yes, and he is 100%. Yeah. He's one of the first ones who's like, okay, David, maybe you're just freaking out a little bit. And then he sees the shit and he's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. And then when the teacher kind of is like, oh, I have a gun in my purse. And she takes it out and they're like, well, does anyone know how to use this? Ollie's like, I mean, I can. And they're like, Ollie. The motherfucker takes that thing and loads it like a boss. And he's like, yep, time to kill some fucking insects. Well, and he's like, yeah, I, I'm a state champion yep. in the shooting. Fuck you. And it wasn't just the bad acidness of it <laughs> as much as he was actually willing to say, hey, I will step up. Yeah. I will take responsibility. I will try. I yeah. will like put in effort to make the situation better. You know, it wasn't just, oh, you're a gun badass as right. much as he was actually willing to just do something yeah he's also one of the first people who like sees mrs carmody's yeah. bullshit yeah. happening and unfolding he's the guy who delivers the most cynical line in the movie as a species we're fundamentally insane but more than two of us in a room we pick sides and start dreaming up reasons to kill one another why do you think we invented politics and religion He's also the one who just, I mean, again, okay, she's going crazy. They have everyone cornered. They start screaming to take the kid as a sacrifice, and then they start screaming just to kill everyone. And then for whatever reason, I don't know why they have her drinking milk, and it was just adding to her craziness, making you not like her. There was something weirdly unnerving yeah. about that, yeah. According to research and my wife and people who research serial killers, only psychopaths just drink, drink milk yeah, for fun. Out of like a glass bottle in 2007 which i take that personally because your boy will constantly just go in and take a big swig from the carton yeah well you know what what does it say about you aaron okay yeah exactly yeah are you a psycho <laughs> <laughs> as they're all about to just get killed by these crazed people now that have taken her side she just gets blown away and everyone's like oh fuck and that's the thing he doesn't do it lightly no no he even like has to reassure yeah. it to himself i only did it because she was going to kill her kid and that's what david it's like, I know, that's why I said I thank you. Well, exactly, like that's why I said thank you, yeah. And man, his demise is just so unfortunate in this movie. Yeah, so that's what I really felt like. If this was a situation, this would be Evan. Yep. A thousand percent. <laughs> does all the right things, is level-headed, makes it all the way to the end, and then gets eviscerated yep. by a praying mantis. That would definitely <laughs> be my fucking end, for sure. Well, and it, it's interesting, because that's how he is in the novella, too. Yeah. He's the one who kills Mrs. Carmody. He's the one who, like, gets them out in the open to escape. Well, and I think it's really cool, too. And, like, in a very serious note, obviously, right i'm joking and and all that but on a very serious level i think it was really interesting and cool 
to show that a lot of times, or maybe more often than we should, people tend to think that these unassuming characters in life can't be productive or the important character or valuable in in these kinds of situations. Yeah. And it was just refreshing. He ultimately, he becomes, he's more important in the grand scheme of it than David. Yeah. And this is a what if. Say he had survived and he got in the car too with them. I don't think the ending would have happened the way it happened with him in there. Probably not. Yeah. Because he probably would have talked him down. Exactly. They would have waited at least a while and then like yeah. the rescue would have happened. And that might be why King kind of had him meet his demise because you know following that character if he is in that situation like you said it probably doesn't end the way that you know the director takes it well talking about this also again being a proto walking dead because since walking dead and more so game of thrones now that we're like past these shows that we're like cultural juggernauts the idea of anybody can die at any time no character is safe people treat that like oh the walking dead or game of thrones did that first this movie kind of has that energy already yeah. like no one's really safe in this movie at all well yeah and like they show you know andre brower's character obviously and then like yeah we have no idea what happens to him he just walks off and leaves the movie exactly and then the big gruff motorcycle guy who's like i'm gonna go get that dude's shotgun he is immediately dispatched right (laughs) yeah and you're like well clearly if there's like a dude who's going to survive or could survive this he's got to be one of them they even hand him like a steak knife before he gets out there and he shows him like this big ass fucking belly knife and he's like no i got my own then you know the fact that he is just so quickly oh yeah he is just legs now yeah well not even all the secondary villains don't meet their demise either because the guy who goes fucking crazy and like was at the beginning insulting mrs carmody and then is her most vocal supporter he kind of lives at the end yeah so does that butcher who was the the soldier yeah i I, I feel like the really like no one is safe moments because you had that sub romance that is not in the novella between the bad girl and that other soldier and then they both bite it in very shitty ways like she just gets stung by one of the giant wasp things it dies in my opinion the most horrific death yeah i think you who are afraid of wasps and hornets yeah yeah and then he bites it being sacrificed yeah he gets fucking lotteried out the front door (laughs) yeah Yeah, after getting stabbed like four times by a gigantic knife yeah yep yeah and again this movie like doesn't shy away from bleakness and just kind of unceremoniously killing people off it's interesting because in the i think in the novella all three of the soldiers committed suicide yeah they all just hung themselves in the back they never get any answers from them and in this one the other two commit suicide it is interesting how quickly people jump to hopelessness in this movie that's where again like that's maybe a nitpick on my part but like I think with the grand context of what this movie's trying to be, like it, it works. Yeah. The only other complaint besides the creature effects themselves, I don't think it needed to be this long of a movie. The runtime is over two hours. Just barely. Or at least it's close to yeah, two hours. Just barely. Yeah. And it's not so much any specific scene I can think of, but like little bits and pieces I feel like they could have cut out. They could have not spent as much arguing over like the tentacle monster. The trip to the pharmacy could have been cut. I I think it didn't offer much and that happens in the novel actually but yes i think so much of the spider bullshit they could have cut some of that the one scene that and granted i understand why like they were trying to keep it in there to like give her character some power i did not like that whole part where mrs carmody is just standing there and the thing lands on her yeah looks at her and then flies away i was just like i think that's important though because that's the instance of 
you've literally spent your entire life being fucking wrong and crazy about everything, and this is the one time that something that you says is going to happen, right? Now, I would agree with you if anyone had paid attention to what was happening here, because, like, I watched that scene twice, because I was like, okay, well, surely, like, it'll show in the background people who will go on to become one of her followers are watching this happening. No one's watching it happening because all the chaos is still happening. Like, the guy's lit on fire. The other people are trying to kill some of the other bugs. The other people are fighting, like, the giant bird thing that was killing the bugs. I guess, like, I didn't go back and look to see if any of the extras were actually paying attention to her. But the movie certainly frames it that that's kind of like this fulcrum moment where people start to, like, believe her. Yeah. I don't know. The way it was executed felt good goofy to me like i think you're right that makes sense to give her some validity but i think there could have been a better way to do it maybe maybe again it's just like the creature effects bothering me because like when the creatures are not in the mist i thought they kind of looked shitty yeah they don't look great i mean but that's 2007 cgi yeah so let's transition there real quick let's jump back to like some of the production stuff so i guess to backtrack just a little bit the biker we mentioned him darabont originally wanted that character to be played by stephen king as a cameo and stephen king was like nah fam i don't want to travel to shreveport louisiana (laughs) which can we all agree like good decision nobody wants to go to shreveport louisiana in in a interesting tidbit which some of your viewers might be interested in but it does kind of relate so the guys that worked on doom so basically the people who originally made id software and you know all of the original quakes and everything when they were working on their first game they lived in shreveport they were making old school floppy disk games that were mail order and they stole all of the computers from the place they worked at every night and brought them back to their house and then were using those to code their game but that was all in shreveport which i think is just hilarious who is id software who uh, what? they do doom and doom. um rage recently quake quake okay I was just making sure there wasn't like a little more crossover there because I did read that the creators of Half-Life and Silent Hill were both specifically inspired by the Mist novella. Oh, interesting. The government science project at the center of Half-Life was originally even going to be called Quiver as a reference to Operation Arrowhead. Okay, yeah, because I was going to say that is very similar to how the first Half-Life starts. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, like you could argue that the first Half-Life is what actually happened at the the lab before (laughs) this was released. Yeah, this movie was shot in Shreveport. They had 100 local extras, 60 of whom became the featured extras with the main cast. The exterior of the grocery store was a relocation outside of Shreveport in Vivian, Louisiana, called Tom's Market. All the interior was a set. The production design of this movie was kind of purposely meant to feel timeless. The clothing is fairly neutral for most of the characters, but then there's things like the MPs are all in like older uniforms and driving like an old Jeep. They look like they're out of the 1940s or 50s. It was weird. They have a flip phone, which was at the time. So there are cell phones, but then immediately the cell phones are all rendered useless anyway. Yeah. This is one of those things like if I have a complaint about the movie, it's that and that's a complaint that I have about like this is a nitpick of mine that drives me up the wall with movies where the production design can be incredibly distracting if one element seems like it's too out of place or anachronistic or something like that. I've brought this up on the show, but literally, I think the first episode of Stranger Things, where Eleven levitates the Millennium Falcon toy, that is not an original 1970s, 80s Millennium Falcon toy. That is like a modern 2015 release of that toy, right? 
<laughs> and that was one of those moments where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, half the nerds <laughs> that made this fucking show probably had this at their apartment and could go home and get one and use it in this fucking show. It's the same thing in It Follows that people have brought up with the weird e-reader yeah. thing, right? You would swear all of It Follows takes place in like 1986, but then the girl has like the weird clamshell e-reader device. I think someone pulls out a phone in that right? one too. Yeah. Like so like, I think the idea of trying to make your thing timeless sometimes can backfire if there are elements that are completely out of step with that reality that you're trying to create. Honestly, the big one that bothered me was the MP's outfit. That one was just Yeah, like, exactly. What? Because they look like, oh, you just stepped out yeah. of the 1960s. You literally stepped yeah. out of Roswell, Roswell right? <laughs> yeah, and they're driving Jeeps like that time Correct, period, yeah. too. Like, I mentioned that, yeah. I was expecting them to come in there and ask and if they have seen the band of renegade mercenaries known as the A-Team. Yeah. They were super old school so i don't know and then it's weird too because like it's not that they didn't have access to more modern stuff because at the end when you see the military it is all they are all modern exactly period correct yeah so like i don't know how effective that idea that concept was utilized in this movie and it is something that i nitpick in a lot of other movies that pulls me out i try not to like think about behind the scenes stuff while i'm watching movies but there are times where immediately i'm just like nope all right you just yanked me out of this movie because now i'm paying attention to this one little dumb detail that shouldn't be there the local brands it was fun to see, like, in the grocery store, shit like Zaps Chips and uh, Jiffy yeah. Cornbread. Yeah. One of the fire trucks is a Cato Parish fire truck, and they, like, didn't even bother to cover up that logo. <laughs> so, like, yeah. all, all that shit was fun, like, considering we all are fairly local to the region and know Shreveport and have been there. One, like, kind of set-dressing thing, and it was a, a weird aside, but I, I wish it had paid off, but it never did, was when they first entered the pharmacy, he grabs a comic, yes. and I was like, obviously doing that for his, his son. Yeah. was traumatized but he never hands him the comic no. and i was like oh come on uh, yeah and i think that's literally just like a detail from the novella that they just left in there yeah now the easter egg of it is darabont suggested that the comic he grab be a copy of punisher war journal yeah i i, I was kind of thinking about something like that yeah. but because thomas jane had beef with the producers of that movie which is why there was never a sequel yeah jane suggested that he pull an issue of Hellboy, specifically because he's buds with Ron Perlman, and Ron Perlman was going to be starring in Thomas Jane's directorial debut, The Dark Country, the next year, and because Darabont is friends with Guillermo del Toro. So they were like, yeah, fuck it. Dude is an issue of Hellboy. Why not? Yeah. So y'all have mentioned the creatures a couple of times, and that's another point of contention as far as criticism of the movie goes. I am mixed because some of the creature stuff I think is really fucking cool. I think the designs of the creatures are pretty fucking cool because in some ways they are overly evil looking. Like, why the fuck did the spiders have human teeth? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you There's there. shit like that where it's like, oh God, what the fuck is this? So in some ways, the creatures are overly evil. There's no reason why the tentacle needs to like flay open and have fucking teeth in it. Yeah. But in other ways, they're very mundane. And you kind of realize by the end, especially like, oh, there's giant fucking things out there. And we've literally only been seeing like the fleas and the cockroaches. Right. The smallest. And those things are the things that have been hunting 
tempting us and making us feel like prey, and yet that's just the beginning. So I, I really like the idea that the creatures are just these goofy little mundane, like, oh, this is just like a weird little four-winged pterodactyl thing that probably would mind its own business if you didn't fuck with it. But on the other hand, it's covered in spikes and shit and looks awful, yeah. right? <laughs> There's no reason why the spiders not only need to, like, web you up and, like, drain your blood, but, like, also we're gonna, like, fill your body with eggs and you're gonna fall over and yeah. explode into fucking spiders <laughs> <Yeah>. everywhere. <laughs> and their webbing yeah. was acid, Yeah, basically. exactly. Exactly. So yeah. there's all these cool touches with how the design of the creatures themselves, which there's yep. three secret sauces for that. One is fucking legendary illustrator and comic book artist Bernie Wrightson was brought on board to be a lead creature designer. He's the guy who co-created Swamp Thing. He adapted Frankenstein. He illustrated Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf. And he worked on like illustrated versions of The Stand and Wolves of Kala and the comic adaptation of Creepshow, which, Damien, thank you for providing me with a copy of that. I appreciate it a lot. So you've got Bernie Wrightson, who is normally not involved with movie stuff, designing these creatures. The other lead creature designer is concept sculptor Jordu Shell, who began his career in film working with Screaming Mad George on The Bride of Reanimator, and then would just go on to like work with Stan Winston on Predator 2 and Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns, and he's the dude who's primarily involved for like actually nailing and figuring out the design of the Navi and the Avatar movies. James Cameron brought him specifically on board because the CG artists just weren't quite figuring out that. And he's gone on to work on, like, The Giver and Hellraiser movies and Escape from L.A. and Face Off and Starship Troopers, all kinds of shit. And the creature designs themselves are pretty faithful, too, while also kind of just being their own thing. Because the novella is pretty vague, right? It does the Lovecraft thing of it's so terrifying, your mind can't comprehend what it looked like. But at the same time, they do get attacked by, like, giant spider, I think, in the pharmacy. They're generally described look-wise. The flying things are basically just giant flies slash mosquitoes slash hornets. They do a good job of at least translating what was on the page. Well, and I think it's kind of cool, too, because it's things that are relatively based off of creatures that we have here. Yeah. Because they do kind of go a little bit further, like I said, as far as we're trying to look into a neighboring dimension. It kind of makes sense that we would have similar things. They just happen to be much more deadly and terrifying. Yeah. And there's a bell curve on creature design of it just looks too mundane and too much like something we already have and then it looks way too fantastical and i can't wrap my head around the mechanics of how this creature operates right and there's like a meeting in the midpoint where it's perfect yeah i i'm glad we only see the tentacles but i am kind of curious as to like what the fuck did that thing look like right oh yeah like what were those tentacles attached to right i imagine it as just a blob in the middle and (laughs) then tentacles coming from it yeah in the third part of the creature design so greg nicotero and Howard Berger provided the actual like special effects and makeup through KNB. And those are the dudes who would go on to do all of Walking Dead and direct a lot of the like major important episodes. They were all very specific about wanting to create these super unique designs that nobody had really seen before. And practical reference puppets were made, but no major practical rigs were ever really built outside of a few small things like that severed chunk of tentacle. 
And like the behemoth scene wasn't even going to be originally included. And the SFX team literally had to convince Darabont to add that scene in that was in the novella. But what's disappointing is, you know, it might just be because the production was rushed, which they literally started filming this in February of 2007, and it came out late November of that same year. That is a short fucking window, right? So it could be that this was done cheap. We already talked about he worked with less money to make the movie. It could be that CG at the time was just not the best, right? Like there's moments where I think the tentacles look really bad, right? The tentacles look terrible, but then like the pterodactyl birds look pretty fucking cool. Like those look good in the scenes that they're in. They feel more tactile. They feel more textured. The lighting works better for those, but then like the tentacles just look so fucking out of place and floaty, you know? In the middle, I think the most inconsistent one is the spider the spiders are come and go at certain points they look great and at other points it looks goofy once they got to the pharmacy the spiders really lost me i get they wanted to probably explore that a little bit more because it's terrifying you know and like that is a creepy crawly yeah but once we saw that and like we got to like oh a lot of the webbing i was kind of lost on that yeah by the way how'd that scene treat you aaron with you hating human teeth and spiders yeah it's not good like i don't i don't like either still don't like either (laughs) especially especially the part where the babies come out of his body yeah so to to be honest i'm trying to eat a little bit better so as a snack this week i got blueberries you know instead of candy or whatever i could never eat another blueberry again because I was eating that while I saw that scene. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, now you can, can only think of spider eggs? Yep. Can't happen. So all that being said, as far as the look of the effects goes and like whether or not we buy the idea of it, what's disappointing is this. Darabont originally wanted to do this movie in black and white. He shot the movie for black and white. The lighting is definitely for black and white. That was what he was going for. He wanted it to have that kind of throwback feel. The black and white was going to help it be a little more timeless as well. They've definitely released the black and white version. Right. So I was about to say, yeah. And unfortunately, it is nowhere to be found on the internet. I was even trying to find it in like some dark corners so I could watch it. I was it. about to say, I really want to see it by yeah. way. It's not streaming anywhere. Even if you like own it through iTunes or whatever, there's no alternate version that you can watch. So it exists on the special edition two disc DVD and Blu-ray. And I have the Blu-ray. It's just fucking packed up still. So I was kind of aggravated because that's the version that I prefer to watch. If you watch the black and white cut... And I will be this guy. I will absolutely be this guy. And tons of people have said the same thing. The black and white version's better. It looks better visually. The lighting makes more sense. The effects are more realistic looking. I bet the creature designs are good in the black and white. They yeah. they work better, right? The CGI works yeah, better. Yeah, well, because they all look better when they're in the mist and you can't see the detail. So that would make exactly. a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's something about the lack of texture and the glossiness and how it interacts with lighting that's kind of off but seeing it in black and white it works better so like i'm gonna be that dude and just be like yeah if you can spend the 10 bucks on amazon and like get the two disc blu-ray and just watch the black and white version like that is by far the better version i wish that they would make that version available on streaming as well even if it's just a go into the sub menu on itunes and like pick that version instead Speaking of which, this is such a stupid little thing, but I think it is a very key thing that they nailed well. Otherwise, this whole movie would not have worked. The mist looks menacing and looks good. Oh, yeah. There's a real sense of relief at the end when the mist is finally lifted. Yes. I physically noticed, oh, I don't feel as tense now when the mist is gone. Yeah. I'm kind of 50-50 on it. 
I don't think that the bigger bank of mist is coming toward the sea. Like, I don't think any of those CGI effects look great. No, that no. I'm talking about like when they're actually enveloped in the mist already. Like, that all looks good. That all right? looks great. I think the yep. moment where they open the garage door and you just see the bank of mist sitting there is super fucking cool. And they did that by like adjusting the temperatures between those two areas that there is that weird barrier that's kind of created. That stuff I think works so fucking well, but yeah, the like CGI fog bank yeah. coming is well, I mean, kind of sketchy. Yeah, but I thought the whole time they were driving through it too. I thought that looked pretty decent because that's all practical, right? Yeah, yeah. it's easy to like fill a parking lot up with smoke, right? Fill a small right, area yeah. of the like, yeah, all that, all that works because that's all still done practical for sure. Well, and, and talk about some Silent Hill shit. You have a guy who's bloodied running into the store saying there's things in the mist. The siren is going, yeah, yeah. as the mist is rolling over everything. Yeah. Like that's some Silent Hill ass shit right there. Last thing, I guess, let's kind of briefly run through the cast. As we mentioned, it's super interesting that there's so much Walking Dead crossover, you know, between Melissa yeah. McBride and Laurie Holden, Jeffrey DeMunn, Sam Witwer, Juan Gabriel Pereja, and then some extras, Sherry Dvorak, Brandon O'Dell, Julio Cesar, Cedillo, and Tiffany Morgan. A lot of people that ended up in Walking Dead. Who was Sam Witwer in Walking Dead? He is uncredited, but he is the dead soldier in the tank in the very first episode. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That's like a fun cameo for him. Interesting. Yeah. Does he get a shit owned and everything he like he's in yes because he's also in spoiler for a game that no one cares about costello protocol which is like the dead space ripoff he's the bad guy in that and gets his shit owned although he does do pretty good as deacon st john in days gone he also has been in a shit ton of star wars stuff i yes yeah i saw i guess let's just start there yeah so like he started off in tv he did battlestar galactica he was in pathology he was in the walking dead convention he was in a lot of being human he was in a lot of supergirl but the main thing is he is the main character from those force unleashed games they modeled the character after him he is that character right oh shit i didn't know that okay. and not just that but he has been the voice of Darth Maul in literally every piece of fucking Star Wars media since Phantom Menace. He is also the voice of Emperor Palpatine in most shit now. That character kind of bounced between a couple of different actors, between Tim Curry, Ian Abercrombie, and now Ian McDiarmid is actually voicing him, but for a long time, Sam Witwer is doing him as well in Clone Wars, in Rebels, in Resistance, in Solo, in the Lego shit, in like everything. So yeah, he's he's been in a lot of stuff. Alexa Davalos, that was the like bag girl that he kind of has a relationship with. She was in stuff like Chronicles of Riddick, Clash of the Titans. She is in the Punisher TV show for Marvel, weirdly enough. Okay, yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. She looked really familiar. Melissa McBride, we mentioned her already. She's in Pirates of Silicon Valley, playing a character named Elizabeth Holmes, but not the Elizabeth Holmes we all know and love to make fun of. And then obviously The Walking Dead. Billy, the son, is played by Nathan Gamble. He was in Babel and The Hole. He is Jim Gordon's son in The Dark Knight, and he is in a movie called Dolphin Tale, which uh, another member of the cast was also in Dolphin Tale. The guy that runs in and screaming like there's something in the mist, right? That's Jeffrey DeMunn. He is in 
Christmas Evil, The Hitcher, The Blob. He is in Shawshank. He's in Citizen X. He is in Disney classic Rocket Man, which also features William Sadler from this cast. He's in Stephen King's Storm of the Century, The Green Mile. He was on Walking Dead as well. He was on the show Billions. Francis Sternhagen plays the older lady Irene. She has been in tons of TV stuff. Outland, Bright Lights, Big City, Communion, which was another movie that we talked about doing with you, Evan. Yeah. Misery, Doc Hollywood, Golden Years, which was another Stephen King TV adaptation. Uh, She was also in Dolphin Tale. So it's interesting, like, how much Stephen King crossover we're already seeing with this cast that, like, so many people have been in other things already. Again, William Sadler, one of the, like, maintenance guys who, like, is the dude who first goes crazy. Yeah, I like seeing him in anything Yeah, he's in. Bad guy in Doc Die Hard 2. Yep. He also narrated the audiobook of The Mist that came out in 1986, weirdly enough. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, Hard to Kill, Die Hard 2, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh, I forgot he was in Hard to Kill. Trespass, Freaked, Shawshank Redemption, in a few episodes of Tales from the Crypt, but specifically, he's in the movie Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, which we gotta fucking do that soon. Yeah, we do. He's also in Bordello of Blood in a cameo. Disturbing Behavior, The Green Mile, Roswell. He's in the MCU. He was the president in Iron Man 3 and in Agents yeah. of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, more recently, he was in VFW. That was really good, actually. Yeah, VFW, VFW yeah. is fun. Yeah. And Hard to Kill, he's the he's Senator Trent, he's Senator right? Trent. He's yeah. guy. I'm gonna yeah. take you to the bank, Senator Trent. Money now and a lot more when I get in that office. Take that to the bank. I'm going to take you to the bank, Senator Trent. To the blood bank. The blood bank. To the blood bank. bank. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so good. Then we've got Toby Jones, who played Ollie. He's in Mike Lee's Naked Ever After. Like, I didn't really notice him until he was in Infamous, where he's playing... True crime reporter, writer. Truman Capote? Oh, Truman Capote. Capote. Where he's playing Truman Capote. Wasn't he also? He's also in Captain America. He plays Arnim Zola. He's also in the MCU. Yeah. He's in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the Hunger Games movies, Snow White and the Huntsman, which was a movie that Darabont was developing and gonna fucking direct he's in a great horror movie called barbarian sound studio most recently he's been in some iffy stuff like uh the snowman jurassic world fallen kingdom empire of light but he's in the pale blue eye which is a netflix movie that I'm kind of interested in watching. Well, he's also going to be in the new Indiana Jones movie that's coming out. Yes, and here's the wild shit that I did not know until like literally five minutes before we started recording. He is the son of Freddie Jones, a very well-known British actor. He was in fucking David Lynch's Elephant Man. He plays Thufur Hawat in Dune. He is in Firestarter, so his dad also was in a Stephen King project. He's in Krull. He's in Wild at Heart and the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Like, what the fuck? I had no idea that Toby Jones is the son of Freddie Jones. Nepo babies, am I right? <laughs> they keep coming up. Yeah. Andre Brower that plays Brent. He was in Glory. Uh, I, w- I was over the moon to see him in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I-, I love him when he shows up in anything. He's in Homicide yeah, Life on the Streets, which is one of my favorite fucking shows. It's kind of like a predecessor to The Wire. 
Primal Fear, City of Angels, Frequency. Man, Frequency is such a good movie. I forgot about that. He is in Frequency. Shit, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He's like his friend cop person. Yeah. He is in the TV version of Salem's Lot that Rob Lowe was in in the 2000s. So even he was in fucking Stephen King shit beforehand. He was also in a movie that our buddy Zach Lamplew that we mentioned earlier worked on early in his career called The Baytown Outlaws, which shot in the New Orleans area. And then he's been on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for years. Like that's the thing that most people recently would have seen him on. One of my favorite credits of his is he voiced Darkseid in one of the Superman, Batman Ah. animated movies that DC has put out in the last 15 years. Weirdly enough, I guess that's like as close as we get to having somebody that did voice work on Batman the Animated Series is Sam Witwer did a lot of (laughs) DC animated voice work and so did Andre Brower. Marsha Gay Harden, who plays Miss Carmody, she was in Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing, which I fucking love, Day Trippers, Desperate Measures, Pollock, Mystic River, The Dead Girl, she was on Damages for a while, The Newsroom, she has most recently been in the Fifty Shades trilogy. Oh, nice. (laughs) Well, I might have to watch that now. (laughs) And Confess Fletch. Lori Holden, who plays Amanda, started off in TV. She was also in The Majestic, uh, which was Darabont's movie prior to this. She's in The X-Files. She was in The Fantastic Four. She's in the Silent Hill movie. She was also in The Shield and The Walking Dead after this. Pie Wackett, which I have brought up on the show as a recommendation. Yeah. She's in The Americans, which Heather and I watched recently, and she's now on The Boys. So that's where people have probably seen her most recently. And then lastly, we have Thomas Jane, who plays David, right? Last but not yeah. least. Hell yeah. Yeah, the fucking shoe shuffer himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, I mean, to be serious, you know, I, I think regular shoes are kind of like prison for your feet. He actually was in the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Nemesis, which he just died recently, R.I.P. The Crow City of Angels, which I have brought up on this show. Nice. Face Off. I'd like to take his, his face off. Oh. Who is he in Face Off? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to Who think. the fuck is he in Face Off? He is either Nick Cage's brother, or he is one of Nick Cage's henchmen. I can't remember. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna have to go back yeah. and watch Face Off. It's been a minute. It, it has been a minute for me, and Kino is actually about yeah. to put that out on 4K. I'm kind of excited. He's in Boogie Nights, where he is fucking amazing. I forget he's in Boogie Nights, too. Damn. He's in The Thin Red Line. He's in a lot of interesting shit, and he's in yeah. my fucking favorite, Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. My head is like a shark. Oh, yeah. Fin. Oh, man. He is also in Magnolia 61, Dreamcatcher, which Jesus fucking Christ. That's where we get into the, his first Stephen King stuff. We are going to have to do a commentary track for that movie because it is ludicrous. Dude, he's like second build under Morgan Freeman yeah. in that movie, too, I think. Yeah, right? Yeah. Obviously, we've been joking this whole time. He's... In The Punisher, he was the second iteration of The Punisher. Which is not bad as far as those like no. mid-aughts superhero oh, no. movies. That's a movie that at the time I think people shit on, but like looking back yeah. on it, that movie was actually it's not a solid bad. Movie. It's solid. It really is. His short film, uh, The Punisher Dirty Laundry, is even, oh, better. even better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish they would have, uh, or someone would have picked that up and kind of run with yeah. Yeah. Him, him as older Frank Castle. It was so good that John Bernthal like used that 
that short film specifically is a reference is like point, yeah. influence yeah. on on when he took yeah. over as the Punisher. He's also in Kill Shot, which was an interesting Elmore Leonard adaptation. He was on Hung for a long time. Yeah, he it was, was. Like the TV show that he led for years. You forgot that he he had the cameo as one of the vegan police in Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, forgot about that. <laughs> He's also in something called Stander, which doesn't get talked about about a lot, but it's actually really good. Yes, that movie is actually pretty solid. I saw it years ago. Yeah, he is in Mike Flanagan's Before I Wake, and then he's also in the Netflix Stephen King adaptation 1922. He was in The Predator recently, and he was on the first few seasons of The Expanse, which I enjoyed a lot, and I need to catch back up with. Well, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, I might have to. Check yeah, he's that out. like one of the major important characters in the first little bit of that show. Some other goofy little bits. Frank Darabont is good friends with legendary poster artist Drew Struzan. At the beginning, when you see him painting, those are all Drew Struzan things. Like, we see the poster for John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. And we see a poster for Pan's Labyrinth. He's painting a gunslinger Dark Tower poster. There's also, like, something from It in there as well. But Drew Struzan's the dude. Like, think of every fucking big blockbuster Spielbergian kind of thing. Fucking Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Blade Runner, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Hook, Shawshank Redemption. He did so many fucking iconic posters, which unfortunately, in the age of Photoshop, everybody has basically aped his style to fucking death, where you just have all the floating heads in a collage on the poster, but now it's all shitty Photoshop, so those posters just look fucking awful instead of epic as fuck like they used to when we were growing up. The book rack that's knocked over in the movie contains nothing but Stephen King paperbacks lol i was wondering i was trying to see like what books yeah. those were and i had a feeling it was something cheeky like that yeah irene is reading a newspaper for the castle rock times like yeah. there there are lots of other little stephen king isms in there for people who know what they're looking at so anyway yeah i think ultimately part of the reason why this movie didn't really succeed and this is kind of where i'll close up this movie was released the day before thanksgiving oof the fuck <laughs> what a fucking terrible window of time to release this movie not a good one i get when they're filming in february it's hard to say let's shoot for october that's tough but i looked at what came out january february 2008 and guess what nothing the only thing standing in the way was cloverfield came out mid-january and that movie is very kind of similar in terms of plot things to this movie that's really the only movie that was standing in the way of this coming out just in the dumping zone time where like a horror movie would have cleaned up but instead they put this out the day before thanksgiving in the middle of five other big movies all playing and 2007 just as a reminder was a fucking insane year for movies 2007 is like one of the best modern movie years here's the top 10 grossing movies of the year like these were the blockbusters that made more than 450 million dollars from 10 to 1 300 national treasure 2 the simpsons movie i am legend ratatouille transformers shrek 3 spider-man 3 harry potter 5 pirates of the caribbean 3 wow that's just the top 10 grocers and that is like all in another league of budget and and yeah 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 otherwise this year you've got david fincher's zodiac 
PTA's There Will Be Blood, you have the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, Scorsese's The Departed. Man, there was a lot of dark cynicism in theaters. Uh, yeah. Turns out coming out of a, like crazy awful period of time where there's war and a crazy president uh maybe has a lot of cynicism in the air Babel, atonement juno dream girls diving bell and the butterfly gone baby gone michael clayton american gangster the lives of others once hot fuzz breach grindhouse 28 weeks later knocked up lovey and rose oceans 13 1408 sunshine the born ultimatum Hot Rod, Super Bad, Rob Zombie's Halloween, 310 to Yuma. Fuck, there was a lot of stuff. Eastern Promises, The Assassination of Jesse James, The Darjeeling Limited, 30 Days of Night, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Enchanted, Sweeney Todd, Walk Hard, and The Orphanage. All of those fucking movies came out in the same year. God. Wow. It is buck wild to look back at that and yeah. think about how now there are actually more movies coming out right now every fucking year. But you get to the end of the year and you're like, here's maybe 15 good ones. And here's yeah. maybe 10 that we're going to talk about five years from now. And here's maybe seven that we're going to talk about 10 years from now. Right. Lack of good movies is all I'll say. Yeah. There's a lot of content being made. There's just not a whole lot that's actually going to stick around. And the last thing I'll throw out, there was a fucking TV show of this that the Weinsteins made in 2017. It aired on Spike TV. It got canceled before the season was finished and it's bad. And we'll <laughs> not talk about it from there. Yeah, I'm guessing it was like them trying to like capitalize on Walking Dead's yes, popularity yeah. at that point. Yeah. Let's end on the ending because we've talked about it. I'll listen to that. Spoiler alert, he, he murders everybody in the car. Another very bleak moment. And again, it's just a hat on a hat on a hat of like darkness is his son wakes up, looks at him and almost gives him a look of what the fuck you doing, dad? And then dad? it cuts to, like outside yeah. and you hear you see the gunshots. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing that kind of bothersome to me in like a weird fucked up way was how OK the older people were in the back. It was like obviously like, OK, we've lived our lives. Yeah, they're old. They don't give a fuck. They're like yeah. all old people in real life. They don't give a fuck about anybody else. Yeah. I love how the two of them are just like, well, seems right to me. Yep. Let's go ahead and kill ourselves. For a split second when he <laughs> counted the bullets and then they were kind of like, yeah, and like realized they'd be one short. I kind of thought the old lady was just going to like jump out of the car and yeah. you know let herself get eaten so that there would be enough bullets. But man, talk about bleak. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I do appreciate this ending for what it is, and I do appreciate the novella's ending, too. And I think, ultimately, I like the novella's ending more, but this ending, the movie's ending, is obviously way more memorable and will forever be more memorable yeah. than the novella. Novella's a little more bittersweet. It still is kind of hopeless, but not as hopeless as this ending is. This ending is just such a gut bunch of despair. So does his son live in the short story? Yeah. They basically all drive off, and then he writes everything down on this guest book at a nearby hotel to like tell their story and says, like, yeah, we heard on a radio one word being repeated hartford hartford so i don't know we're gonna head that way and see what happens and that's it and that's how it ends yeah it's very open-ended they're able to siphon gas or something i think and that's why they're able to stay moving yeah 
and it, it ends kind of the same way, like where it's the same group in the novella. It's him, the teacher, his son and the older couple. And same with the movie and the book. He doesn't make it all the way back to his house to see his wife's dead body. They only make it to like the top of his driveway, but it's so fucked. Shit's fallen over and they can't pass it. They just kind of assume she's dead yeah. and then they keep driving. But otherwise, that's really the only major differences. Well, uh, I guess that's all we really got to say about the mist cool Derek. why don't you uh go ahead and take us out thank you evan for coming on yes yeah always a pleasure yeah, you and i are both people with depression taking meds for depression so i'm glad i got to pick the most depressing horror movie yep. of our line our cool. recent lineup that we could uh, have you on for yeah anytime uh you know aliens are real they're taking over <laughs> probably pretty soon we're not gonna have any cut his like cut his like to, to fight them with the train was a government conspiracy uh, Aaron, cut us like so- that's all I have to say. Yeah, there's some real missed energy right there. Yeah. And with that, we are Watch Dare Horror Movie Podcast uh, with me, the coward Craven, and Aaron, the movie monster boy. You can find us at Watch Dare on Twitter and Facebook. We have a Spotify music playlist uh, also pinned on the top of those. You can get our show at all the podcatchers at this rate, Apple, Spotify, etc. Please continue to rate and review us and follow us mainly on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods. Shout outs to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator on Bandcamp. For the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode, you can get his stuff uh, on Bandcamp at Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown, etc, etc. I think that's all we got. Anything else we should discuss or are we good to go nah leave it alone Derek can't convince Sally there's a fire even when her hair is burning denial is a powerful thing no it's not and I don't have to wear shoes and Aaron here's some milk <laughs>